Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode 18. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guest and provide you with a front-row seat to their recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We only speak for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I am glad you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. And now it's time to meet our guest. I will turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they choose to. My name is Will, and my sobriety date is October 5th, 1989. That's fantastic. I'm not super good at math. How many years is that? That's 32 years, little 32 years this year, which is kind of hard to believe. (laughs) Starting to feel old. (laughs) (laughs) 32 years sober. That's fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about the early years of your life and what did your family look like and where you were born? Sure. Um, I was born in Houston, Texas. 1959. I'm 60, almost 62 years old. And uh, my birthday's in November. My, my mom came from a pretty wealthy family in East Texas. Her grandfather, my great grandfather, they kind of hit oil, East Texas oil family. So she was, you know, raised in a pretty affluent area, albeit in East Texas and Tyler. (laughs) And then my um, biological father Mm -hmm. came from a wealthy family and he was in Houston and River Oaks. They get married I'm the oldest of three. I have a younger sister and then a younger brother. I would say my biological dad was kind of like, you know, that rat pack kind of hip slick, cool kind of drinking, you know, partying type guy. That's cool. He did really, he have, did yeah. he have cool cars and cool clothes and all that? He had cool. Yeah. He was just a wealthy guy that, you know, never really had a job. Uh-huh. I mean, he kind of, and you know, when you look at pictures of him, it's just that whole period, that late fifties, early sixties. And I know that my mom said that when, you know, when they were first married, they had all these friends, they go to parties and all this stuff. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, so, but he was an alcoholic. I don't think she knew it. She's not at all. And I don't remember my biological dad a whole lot. I mean, he was around, but he was gone most of the time. You know, he was supposedly working. I'm not really sure what he supposedly did, but he had a wife and some kids at home, but he also had his life and he was hitting bars and girlfriends and all this stuff. So I go to kindergarten and first grade in Houston. The summer of my first grade year, my little brother's been born. He was born in 65, so I guess it's about 19. This is summer of 66, I believe. And I'm getting ready to, I'm out of first grade, and we go to California because there's a Christian marriage counselor that my uh, mom wanted to go to, and my dad, his name was Willett Wilson, was going to follow her like a few you know weeks or months later or something. Yeah. And we had some cousins out there, and my family's strong Christians. They were, somebody else was, I think it was my, one of her first cousins was, um, going to the same marriage concert. So we go out there and my aunt's living out there, my mom's sister, and we live on Manhattan beach. Summer of first grade, we're living on Manhattan beach, the summer of 19, I think it was actually (laughs) summer of 67. So it was, you know, and we're there for a few months and evidently my biology, he just never showed up. He kept making excuses and excuses. Yeah. So I guess she was hopeful. So we ended up staying. So I went my second, my, I went to second grade in California and at that point, you know, and just kind of show, I mean, I kind of had a dad, but not really because my mom was concerned about where the kid's going to say, where the kid's going to say. And her counselor said, well, just wait till they ask. 
okay. then you can kind of tell them, you know. Yeah. And she said it was like months before, like, hey, where's that guy? You know, so I remember her telling us they were getting divorced, and I remember being upset. I remember he was supposed to show up to a birthday party when I was in second grade in California and didn't show up on time, but came back, showed up the next day all beat up because he evidently got drunk in a bar at the airport and got in a fight or beat up and thrown in jail. But he never really suffered a lot of consequences because he was, you know, wealthy guy. And, and he kind of figured out a way to live his life where he could just drink and chase women and mm-hmm. not get in a lot of trouble and stay within his budget, I guess. They get divorced. Yeah. In third grade, we moved to Tyler. Okay. How'd you do? Okay. You just ended back there because her family was from there? Yeah. She moved there because her, her, her family's from there. My, and I, my grandfather, her father and my grandfather yeah. was a huge influence on me. Okay. Um, he was almost like a John Wayne type character. We have a big, huge, big ran- farm, what they call the farm. is a ranch in East Texas, raised horses. Okay. Quarter horses, gall- over a hundred head of horses. Wow. Big ranch in South Texas that my great grandfather bought in the thirties. <laughs> and so that was my life. I mean, as a kid yeah. and I didn't really suffer my little brother suffered not having a dad, but I didn't because my grandfather kind of became my dad. Okay. And so that was third and fourth grade. And it was real happy. And I remember being, you know, at school, I was just a normal kid and had friends and fit in. Uh-huh. Never played sports because we went to the, the ranch or the farm. We rode horses. We, uh-huh. you know, cattle roundups, you know, hunted, you know, we had hunting dogs and went, you know, raccoon hunting at night and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I grew oh, up wow. just totally out in the country. There was old old just a couple old homesteads that had kind of been abandoned i'd dig for you know for like old license plates and bottles so i had a really great childhood my mom meets my stepdad and they get married when i was in right before fifth grade so i had third and fourth grade in tyler and then fifth grade we moved to dallas and he lived over right rock lake it was his original house from his previous wife what'd you think about that when you were moving from the it was weird it was uh here's your new dad and and my name was just we never we never were adopted yeah but my mom kind of just was like okay you know i guess it was embarrassed being divorced or something so she's like okay here's your new dad here's your new name here's your new town here's your new school wow and so you know i was in I was a new kid. I was at school, one grade, you know, the same school, kindergarten, first grade, new kid, second grade, new kid, third grade, yeah. fourth grade, same school, moved to Dallas. And I go to a little private school yeah. in Dallas for one year, fifth grade, sixth grade, we moved to Highland Park. Oh my God. And so I start off middle school, Highland Park High School, I mean, Highland Park Middle School. Yeah. A brand new kid. How were you doing in grades and intelligence? I was doing fine. I had friends. Yeah. I mean, I was. I, I have a little dyslexia. I'm not horrible. Yeah. And I kind of learned to overcome it. I was never great at math. Yeah. School was. I, you know, I love history in certain classes, but mm-hmm. math and some of the stuff. I, mean, I never. I was never really a bad student. I wasn't great. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of dyslexia a little bit. When did but, you figure out uh, dyslexia? Were they m- modeling well, they, at that? Then they or? knew. They knew. Or, and I was going to a counselor probably in, by fifth and sixth, seventh grade. I'd go to counselor. I mean, a, a, a tutor in the mornings before school. Yeah. Up until high school. Yeah. And they, I just kind of learned how to, you know, like B's and D's would get mixed up. I wasn't really bad, but I definitely had some of it. And I just learned how to kind of cope. I mean, it was. I was real lucky that you know, my, I had a I had a tutor that helped me with it. My stepdad was an okay guy, but he was. He was not an alcoholic, totally straight, but he was World War II vet, Depression-era kid. You know, there wasn't a lot of emotion stuff, but, you know, he worked and showed up at home and was a good guy, but there wasn't a lot there. But luckily, I had my grandfather. So starting off real quick, every weekend, as soon as school got out, I jumped on a bus 
and went to Tyler. What kind? Like a what? Greyhound, Greyhound bus. By, by, by myself. She dropped me off the Greyhound bus station. I got on a bus and I went to Tyler. And then on Sundays, it's only an hour and a half away from Dallas. She would come pick me up okay. and bring me back. To, and I did that up until I probably had a driver's license. And I think when I look at my alcoholism, part of it was I was never had a date in high school, you know, right. and never went out with, you know, girls and everything like that. Because it was just, you know, when you were, if you didn't play sports in Highland Park and you were kind of a weird kid, then you were ostracized. And I didn't want to hang out with the weird kids. And plus, you know, I didn't want to sit around Dallas. I just jumped and went to East Texas. Yeah, you were gone on the weekends. Yeah. How, how You said earlier, you mentioned earlier that uh, your grandfather, Honey, was a big influence on you. Can you talk a little bit more about that, how he... Was influence on Yeah, him? he was just, I mean, when you went and hung out with him, he didn't go, like, take you to the zoo. You just got in the pickup truck with him. You went to the lumber company. You went, we had 100 head of horses in East Texas. It was yeah. about a 1,500-acre ranch. That we called it the farm to separate from the ranch in South Texas, which is real big. Big horse family, you know, one world champion in quarter horses and stuff in Chicago. They did a little quarter horse racing. That was kind of like before my time in the 50s. I mean, um, but and he also, there's a thing called a Galicina horse, which is a smaller pony. It's basically the, the horses that the conquistadors brought over from Europe. It's a little European kind of small pony, small on a quarter horse, about five to six hands smaller, but it's a perfect horse for kids. And yeah. we had 60, bred them. Really? And as a kid, I learned how to green break horses. Oh, and green breaks where you just get them where you can ride them and do stuff. And then somebody else could finish them off. We could really, you know, do things with them. Wow. But I grew up on a horseback. And we were little kids. My grandfather was afraid for us to get hung up in the saddle. We rode bareback. Really? And my sister and I could ride like Comanche Indians bareback. And I'm not kidding. I mean, so I grew up riding horses. And so, you know, you're here in Dallas and you're either, you know, hanging out with no friends or you can go to East Texas and, yeah. you know, dogs and hunting and run around and, and I've always been kind of a collector and there was a couple homesteads or something from I guess a previous owner and part of the farm and we'd go out there and dig for old bottles and license plates so it was a real full life yeah but then you know Dallas there just wasn't anything there for me really and it, I was and I just felt real isolated yeah. I remember just dreading when summer would end going back to school and the school bell would ring, and I was out the door. I never did any sports. So what are your thoughts on spirituality as a young person, as a child? What, what were you getting fed spiritually at that point? Well, I was, you know, I was raised in a Christian household, and my mom kind of switched around churches depending on if she liked the pastors or whatever. Right. But early on, for a number of years, we went to this real strict. This is like in, you know, si you know young middle school age, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. It seemed like we went to this real hardcore little church where he didn't sing and you just set the guy just sat there and just you know preach for an hour and a half and somebody was looking at the bible you know looking around or talking he'd call him out oh really yeah and he was real pro-military my mom maybe thanks the reason why i joined the service still in high school and i left right after i graduated high school is because of all that mm -hmm. even though i always had kind of a love for military and uniforms and stuff like that but i was raised in a christian household aa was where i really got to understand what it all meant and it's funny how you can be raised in a Christian household, go to churches and Bible classes, Sunday school and all that stuff, and know it in your head. But I didn't really know how to apply it yeah. until I got into the program. That's, you're the first person to say that on this podcast in that particular way. That's amazing. Um, when did you first become aware of alcohol and what were your initial thoughts about it? The first couple times I did alcohol was in high school. Mm -hmm. By the time I got my driver's license, I got a couple, I got a friend, uh, his parents knew my mom his mom knew my mom and we became he's still a dear friend of mine mm -hmm. and uh, and I kind of got a little click of friends by the time I had a high, was in high school 
sophomore year. Still wasn't popular, but I had a clique of, you know, five or six friends and they would drink. And I was always really afraid. And I don't remember it so much, but my friends told me, I was like, oh, my mom will smell the alcohol in my breath. But I can remember going down the, when we went in, in Dallas, we were kind of watched as a kid, but we went down the ranch in South Texas at 60 miles south of San Antonio, McMullen County. There's one town. It's 200 people. When we were at the ranch, they're like, well, we are at the ranch. You're safe. Well, we, so about that point, I was 16 and we'd hook up some local town kids and we'd drink Boone's Farm wine and uh-huh. smoke Swisser sweet cigars. And I just remember I would drink it and just get sick. And I, I couldn't hold my alcohol really great. I mean, I would get really drunk. I never sat around and drank, you know, or enjoyed the alcohol. It was always about getting drunk and kind of those, you know, that's what the people around me did. And that's kind of what I did. Yeah. Um, Do you remember that? You just gave me a little PTSD. Do you remember that Boone's Farm wine flavor called Strawberry Hill? Oh, yeah. I didn't like, yeah. Strawberry Hill. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was so good. Tickle Pink was one I, <laughs> Tickle Pink. <laughs> and, I mean, we just would get hammered drunk. Oh, when I was a little kid, we used to get that Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill, and I was like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it, it tasted un- good to me. Yeah, it tasted, I, I would drink, but I could never, I remember I would drink and enjoy it, but then I would just, seems like I can, it always end up, I'd pass out or get drunk. Uh-huh. I never had blackouts, but I never had the, the drugs mixed with alcohols when I could really kind of found my, my, you know, addiction legs, I think. But, but that was it. And then, and I remember I was offered pot a couple of times, or only a few times was around drugs in high school. I would not have done it. And I was scared of it. And I drank some. It was just some, but it was never, I never had alcohol type stuff. I was a good kid. I never got in trouble. The teachers liked me. I was obsessed with the Marine Corps, going down the recruiting office. I was 15 years old and hanging out. So as soon as I turned 18, within a few months, I joined the Marines. It was called the delayed entry program. So you join it. And then when you graduate high school, they sent me off to boot camp in San Diego in, uh, in June of 1978. What was going on in the world then, politically? Were, were you thinking you were going to be sent somewhere? I, yeah, something? at that time. I mean, I was, I was you, know, you know, you ever seen the movie Born the Fourth of July? Mm-hmm. That guy's character, that's, I was just, I'd like that. I wanted to be in the Marines. Um, when I joined, it was during the Carter administration. Yeah. I was already into two years in the Marine Corps. I was already a corporal by the time the Iran hostage crisis happened. Wow. That was the first big thing. Granada happened. Yeah. At the end of my service was the bombing of the Marine barracks in Lebanon. Yeah. But we were only a couple times, we actually, only one time during the, um, I guess the Iran hostage crisis, we got called in, because uh, I joined the reserves. I did about nine months active, then the rest of it was reserves. Yeah. And we got called in from reserve training yeah. to come in one weekend, and we didn't know what happened, then they just let us go. Okay. So nothing, I never went overseas. Okay. And uh, I was in the artillery, and, uh, and I enjoyed it. was good. I liked it. So when did you start drinking on a regular basis? Was it the military? No. So when I was in the Marine Corps, there was, a, this is a, this 1978, and the Marine, the, this is post-Vietnam hangover. It's kind of the dark days of the military. A lot of drug use. It was not a cool thing. Nobody said, thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. You're almost sort of looked down upon. In fact, having a shaved head, yeah. you know, the Marine Corps haircut, a lot of places wouldn't let you in in California, and you just weren't. But I remember seeing drugs a couple times. I remember getting offered by some guys who were corporals or older than me. I was 18. They are probably 20. Hash, and I was freaked out. I remember seeing people smoking drugs a little bit and just never, never, I just didn't do it. Drank a little bit in the Marines, but not much. It was after I got out of, um, off active duty. I drank some a little bit, but again, it was just, if I drank, I kind of, I just didn't last very long. But it was a guy I grew up with. And this is the one thing. 
It's never the stranger with a trench coat. It's somebody you know and you trust. It was a kid I've known since I was a little baby. Grew up with him. His mom and my mom were dear friends. And I went over to his place and he was smoking pot. And he goes, hey, you want to smoke some pot? You know, I, so he sh- offered it to me. It was okay. And where months before, when I was in the Marine Corps, I would have never touched it. I was afraid of it. And I remember I smoked a little bit and didn't get high. And a week or so later, I was back over there. And this other guy, he goes, hey, you want to, you want to get high? And I was like, no, it doesn't work on me. And this other guy goes, come here, I'll show you. And he got like those little plastic football power hitters. And he put the joint in there. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, now breathe in. He just squirted in my mouth. Yeah. And I inhaled it. I discovered the key to life. I remember that. I remember the, the thing. And then I could drink and everything. But that when I smoked pot that first time and I got high, I bought it. I took some with me. And I ran to spread the message to a couple friends. And one of them was our friend Tad. He was a year or two younger. And I went over and I started smoking pot every day. And, and I felt accepted. I could go like to a bar where I saw some high school people that were you know, real dicks to me as, as a kid. And when I was high school and they were nice and I could, I mean, it's just like all of a sudden it's like I had the ticket into the social world. And that is a real thing. I mean, so I've always, I can, I can really remember that vividly. There was a couple instances in my drug using days that were real stark. And that was the one where the first time I smoked pot and I was addicted. I started smoking pot every day. Yeah, me too. My uh, alcohol and drug addiction acted as a heavy duty social lubricant for me because I had a lot of anxiety as a child. I maybe didn't show it that much on the outside, but I did have some anxiety on the inside, just maybe around just normal stuff. Like, do I fit in here? Do these kids like me? Am I athletic enough to make this team? Um, is that girl going to like me? She doesn't seem to be, she don't think she even knows I'm alive, much less liking me. And But then when I started smoking weed, um, which I said I was never going to do as a child, I remember coming up as a child and Nancy Reagan was talking about, just say no, just say no. Um, Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States wife, Nancy Reagan had a program called Just Say No, mm-hmm. and she scared me into not wanting to be doing drugs because they could kill you. And it was that uh, TV commercial with this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. It was a picture of a skillet yeah. and you put the egg in there and cracked it. So I was scared by the media into not doing drugs and drinking. And I didn't really want to do any of that anyway growing up. But then once I did start doing it, I was like, holy moly, just like you said, to, is the key to life for me. And it really lubricated my social uh, ability to hang out. And I was no longer uh, scared of these kids that were my peers. I was no longer scared of the females that uh, were in my class. And I just felt calm and relaxed and happy and hopeful about the future. And that was very opposite of how I usually felt uh, when I was sober as a child. So we definitely traveled in a lot of the same lanes as far as how it affected us. When you just started out drinking, were there any negative consequences to your drinking? I remember you said earlier you couldn't drink a lot, and sometimes you passed out and throw up, I guess. Did you have any negative consequences, any law enforcement deals or no, anything like never, that? No, not early on, nothing. I mean, I just I remember one time I was kind of hungover at the ranch after yeah. we'd gone to this town called Poteet to Kicker Palace. And, uh-huh. you know, I came back, felt horrible. But no, because I never drank that much later you know, I started running. I, I never, I was very fortunate. You know, I never got arrested for drugs. A couple of times I got arrested. This is towards the very end. And we can talk about this later, but um, I had, a, there was an old outstanding speeding ticket or something that popped up when I got pulled over. I was in a bad neighborhood. And they were searching my car for drugs. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anything on me. And, uh, and they, this thing popped up, got thrown in jail, but I was only in there for a few hours. Yeah. And then I had a, then I had written a couple checks that bounced to like a grocery store for like $20 
and I'd gone and picked them up and paid for them. But one of them, it's, I guess I didn't, I slipped through the cracks. Yeah. And a couple of weeks later, I got pulled over in that same neighborhood, almost by the same cops. And that popped up. And I stayed in jail probably for 12 hours. But I was real fortunate. I got a real couple of close calls. Yeah. But I never had any legal complications yeah. on that stuff. But, um, but I was getting real close. I was getting real close. Taking a lot of chances. You drive drunk a lot? Oh yeah, I mean, I, said, oh, I didn't. Yeah, yeah I, I, yeah, I never. If I got real drunk, I would, I couldn't function. Uh-huh. But I drove high all the time. I mean, I'd smoke pot in the car and snorted coke. And can you paint a little bit of a picture for us, or talk about how your uh, alcohol use or your drug use accelerated and progressed, and where did it go to? By the time I smoked pot the first time, I was going to. I'd gotten out of this. I'd gotten out of the um, off active duty, mm-hmm. and my grandfather and my grandmother were still alive. And it was in the middle of the school year. I went to Tyler Junior College. Okay. And they had a thing, a mineral. You could get uh, your mineral landman certificate and some stuff. So I thought, well, I'm just going to go there. And so I went to Tyler. I went to Tyler Junior College. And within a few months, as soon as I started smoking pot, I could talk to girls. I didn't feel, like you said, the social anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, a little bit older. I'd been in the service. Probably more confident in my demeanor, and and I could have girlfriends and hang out and run around and do stuff. And I smoked pot, and and I really identified it, you know. And I mean, when I was like, when I was smoking pot, I love pot, yeah. and you know, and people didn't smoke pot. I mean, it just, you know, I've always kind of been so. I was just, I embraced the whole thing. But we did smoke pot pretty much every day. Now I can tell you that having, you know, little dyslexia and smoking a lot of pot. You know, I, I did okay because I was going to Tyler Junior College. You know, I made decent grades, but. Um, but it definitely affected stuff, and you would definitely put things off. And, and, um, and there was a few times where, you know, somebody's mom confronted me or a few little instances. But I didn't really have any real compl- any, any consequences with smoking pot. It was when I started doing other stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of the things that I, that I know is that when they talk about gateway drugs and people say, you know, that's BS – it, the way it's a gateway drug, if you're smoking pot, you're going over some guy's house, maybe the guy has some mushrooms. Maybe the guy has a little cocaine. That's how it's a gateway drug. You get introduced to that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, people, so a lot of the social commentary, the pro-marijuana crap that's going on now, I think we're going to see in 20, 30 years, just like the opioid epidemic, we're going to see huge consequences. Because I can tell you, for me, pot is addictive. It was addictive. And the second I started smoking, I was addicted. But so... What happened was early on, cocaine was out there. And this is 1980, 81, and cocaine was not addictive. Um, even the literature and, the, and the, the, so, the press was talking about how, you know, as long as you just snorted, it was kind of a great social lubricant. They had a famous cover of Time magazine with a champagne glass with cocaine on it. And, I mean, it was, you know, Woody Allen movies. I mean, it was not the stigma it is now. And, and it was kind of a glamorous drug. And I remember um, snorting cocaine a little bit. It probably wasn't really, it, I know now it wasn't really great cocaine. But I remember this guy who um, we'd go to bars and he would say, talking to girls, hey, y'all want to come back and do some cocaine? And they would go back to like his place or his hot tub. And I was like, wow, you know, so I need to get some of this magical, you know, you know, stuff. And so, you know, you start going on, you meet some girls, you take them back to your place and here have some cocaine, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, a few months later, it's like, well, just here's a little bit of cocaine. And then you get to the point where don't fight anybody over here. Don't these girls can have my cocaine. And you just, it is amazing how that quickly went from something you shared to maybe get friends or get girls to screw you. This is mine. 
Yeah. And, 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 um, so you started to live a cloistered life. Like you would just be by yourself. No, I tell you early eight, the up until about 86, 86, I live, I mean, I was, I went to clubs. I was, I had a cousin went to, um, Pratt Institute yeah. in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, she's a couple years older than me. Didn't have, doesn't have an issue with drugs and alcohol, but I started going up to New York and I, um, and, and hitting the mud club. Yeah. And I lived in clubs. I mean, in Dallas, the big clubs were Stark. the Stark Club first yeah. opened. This is pre-1984, yeah. before Reagan came down to Republican convention. Yeah. 82-ish, 83. One of, a friend of mine, from a girl I knew from high school, yeah. who I kind of reconnected with through smoking pot and partying, mm-hmm. was on the list. Because she invested money when they started the Stark Club. And she put my name on the VIP list. And I could blow through those doors and pre, because they did a couple of big drug busts in, uh, right before Reagan came to town to kind of try to clean the town up. And that bar was more wide open than anything in New York. Open drug use, sexual activity, coat, you know, non-gender bathrooms. And that was, it was just, it was wide yeah. open. It also, ecstasy was legal. And I can't remember the exact years, but I remember you going in the Stark Club and saying, let's get, you know, two beers and two hits of X. I remember it was all legal. That. I remember all and that. And it was unbelievable. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. I had it was, so much fun. It was unbelievable. And then that place, and then the place called the um, CBGBs. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, sorry, that's in New York. Uh, Club Clearview yeah. and the Video Bar. Yeah. And so those bars in the New York, it was. It was um, Did you ever go to was, Limelight in New York? Did you yeah, go? I didn't like it. I liked the Mud Club. I didn't. Yeah. The Tunnel and the Mud Club. The Tunnel was another one. Yeah. This is mid early 80s. Yeah. Um, you're, yes. a little bit, you're just a few years older. Yeah, than I was you, born I in '59. I went yeah. to all the. I went to all those places a few years after you. Yeah, but I do remember when Next C was legal in Dallas. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And I remember going into bars underage and ordering, you know, a couple beers and a couple hits of ecstasy. I remember they would have them in clear glass cookie jars on the shelf. Behind. They were twenty dollars each. Yeah, twenty. <laughs> Dude, it was I, unbelievable. Oh my god, the whole place was. And I never it was, felt like that before when I took that. It stuff. was ground zero for ecstasy here. Yes, this was sir. the place. Well, they weren't legal. You couldn't get them in New York. And I think they call it MDMA, and I think it was invented. What I hear chatter on the street, it was invented by a couple SMU students. Um, yeah, I don't uh, know. It just was, I heard. it was that, legal. That's the craziest. I thing. I do remember it being legal in Dallas because it was it was a designer drug, and there was no laws against. There was it no yet. laws against. They it. didn't have any laws because it was a brand new designer drug, and they're like, "What is it? We don't have any laws against that." And I was like, "Okay." Yeah, that was good times back in the day. So your drug use, uh, talk to me a little bit about your drug use. It skyrocketed at yeah, some point. Yeah, so so I am um, so I'm still functioning. Yeah, you know I um I go to Tyler Junior College. I do I almost I may I think I may have done three years because the last year I went and took this mineral land man certificate and I got my real estate license and I couldn't have gone to work the oil and gas business business. This is eighty five. Yeah, I think and. Real estate's going crazy. I got a friend of mine who just graduated SMU, and he's working in the real estate world, and he's you know making money. So I thought, well, shit, I'm not going because this friend of mine, we tried to go. I was going to transfer to University of Texas at Dallas to go um, maybe finish up the last semester and a half to get my diploma. And I remember the first day in the class, and they're like, you know, here's this and that. And I was like, shit, I can't. I just thought, man, this. I was not prepared going from. Tyler Junior College to this other school, and at the time I had my I, I, I had all the qualifications to get my real estate license, so I got my real estate license. I dropped out of school and I got a job in the real estate world, mm-hmm. and I worked for a local developer, and I did retail, and 
I remember the guy who hired me, he was like five, six years older. He was like a real stud making lots of money. He was probably 30 years old. I'm 25. And, and, and I remember going to real estate parties, guys, you know, invited in cocaine and drugs and people are partying and girls. And it was just this whole surreal world. A guy who got hired by them was a guy about my age, maybe a year younger. I'd been there about a year. I was still functioning. And he shows up. He's from Miami. And he, <laughs> one day he asked me if we went to party or something. I said, yeah, we went over his apartment. And again, I'd been buying stepped on crappy cocaine, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. And he pulls out from under his bed a brick. And when he opens it up, you could smell it in the room. And he slight, cut some off of it. And again, that was it. I snorted real cocaine and I was hooked. I stopped smoking pot very rarely. And I started smoking, snorting cocaine. Uh-huh. And that probably went for about a year and a half. And it went, I mean, it was real quick. It got to the point to where I went from functioning to trying to appear I was functioning. March of 1988, I went to the Meadows. So that period of about a year, year and a half, it got pretty bad. I want to ask you a question I've never asked anybody, and I'm yeah. super interested in what you're going to say. What is the difference between doing real cocaine and stepped on cocaine? No, it's not, it's not the same drug. I mean, it's just, I can't even explain. I mean, just, there's not even the same planet. I mean, the way it hits you, it's just, no, it's not even, I don't, yeah, yeah, it's just, what's I mean, on step, what's in stepped on cocaine? Is I mean, it so baking baby, soda? Yeah, no, it's got like baby lax and all this stuff in it. Oh, I mean, no. this stuff was pure, I mean, this stuff was like crystallized and like, yeah. like set, like, you know, a sedimentary rock where you can yeah. lay, I mean, it was unreal. This yeah. was a brick of cocaine. From Miami? The guy was from Florida, yeah, from Miami. Yeah. And I went from, you know, maybe getting a little gram to, you know, getting an eight ball. And I never sold it. Now, this guy ended up getting busted before I went to, before I got sober. And I had found out later, somebody said that the cops were kind of watching me. I remember being in a bar one night in Dallas and some guy didn't know, walked up and said, hey, man, can you sell me some cocaine? I was like, I don't ever sell cocaine. I mean, I, I, you got some to sell me. <laughs> and so I was being watched because this guy and this guy did get busted. I'm not sure what happened to him, yeah. but it was night and day. And I can remember before I went to, uh, when I was really heavily, I mean, my head, my sinuses would throb if I didn't do cocaine. Did others ever confront you about your yeah. drinking or drug use and start to ask you questions about your behavior? And yeah, I got, I got to where the grub, I was working for this guy here in Dallas and, and I had a couple of deals and then, and then after a while I just wasn't functioning. And so I, the guy kind of said, Hey, you, you know, you need to move on. Thanks a lot. I got confronted by my mom and, and I said, yeah. And I wanted to go, my little brother who's six years younger than me had already been to the Sierra to, to, um, Hazleton. And so that opened the door. And it was a few, six months before, you know, I went. And I went to the Meadows. Okay, where's that? Is- the Meadows is in Wickenburg, Arizona. Okay. This is the spring of 1988. Okay. And so I just kind of locked up my apartment. I know, I know what it called me. I'd kind of been, I'd been stealing checks from my, my mom. At this point, you know, my family's oil and gas business. And the price of oil is up. And yeah. for a while, they never even noticed. Yeah, you know, yeah you're like, they won't But a couple little things happened. And I got confronted. And I went to, to treatment. Did you ever think to yourself that you might have a problem? Yeah, I knew I had a problem. You did. I you knew did. I was smoking. I knew. I can remember. I remember early on, even when I was still buying stepped on cocaine, I kind of took, added up how much money I'd spent on it. I was like, oh, that's a lot of money. The alcohol always was a piece of the puzzle. It wasn't the big puzzle for me. I drank. But if I couldn't really drink without drugs, but, you know, it was going to, there's a bar in Dallas called SRO. And when I was in the real estate business at that point, you know, every Thursday night I would go there. And my life was pretty much involved around drinking and partying and chasing girls. And so I go to the Meadows. It's six weeks. 
I um, did real well. My grandfather died when I was 21, right, after, right before I turned 22 in 1981. Oh, no. And a lot of unresolved grief. And I didn't come. And then when he, as soon as he died, I went and found my biological dad. And he was kind of, it was kind of a weird thing. Because, like, we, my sister and I, my little brother was a lot younger. But we were, like, my, my real name is Willett. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like he felt guilty or like he was a bad guy. My mom would hurt her feelings. So yeah. when my grandfather died within a month, I reached out and got a hold of my biological dad. And I went and saw him. And, he, and again, within a couple of hours, in the first place, I hadn't seen him since I was a little kid, but I recognized my mannerism and behavior in him. It was kind of weird. My brother, I could see myself in him. Wow. And, and he liked it. He didn't do drugs, but we went out. You know, he took me and my sister and her current husband at that time was her boyfriend. We'd go duck hunting. He was a big hunter. Spend, you know, all winter in, in Mexico hunting deer and ducks and stuff. And definitely an alcoholic, but a functioning one. You know, the guy, the good guy at the bar and all this stuff. And I kind of hung out with him a little bit and did stuff. But so the first time I saw him, he asked me, hey, you know, you need anything? Can I do something for you? You need any money or anything? And I had this <laughs> friend of mine that was a real, this guy got a lot of some trouble, just would always push the envelope with stuff. Never anything really criminal, but just crazy kind of things. And I remember telling him, he goes, yeah, tell him you want, you know, tell him you want $40,000. He's got a lot of guilt. <laughs> yeah. And so I remember I saw him and he asked me again, hey, can I, do you, can I buy you a car? And I thought, well, I can't get a car because my mom will find out. He goes, well, how about money? I said, yeah. He goes, how much do you want? And I go, $40,000. Because this, this is 1981 or two. And he, and he goes, well, I can't give you 40, but I'll give you 20. <laughs> okay. And he gave me an American Express card. And his instructions were, just don't break me. Okay. I, I was real good for a long time about that card. And, and yeah. so weekends I'd fly to New York yeah. and I'd go rent a, get a hotel room at the, you know, with reasonable the thing. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I was wondering how you were paying for those. Yeah, I forgot, I forgot that. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I had, you know, 20 grand. And so, and then at one point bought a bunch of gold Cougarans on the credit card and he got pissed and cut it off, but he was always there a little bit, but it, I kind of ran through that real hard for a few years. Yeah. Even when I finally did get sober, I remember I went down and saw him one of the last times I saw him because he ended up dying kind of had, he had like a stroke or something he was driving his car. He was still young, but he was drinking and he had a wreck and he died. Oh, no, but um, he was like, Hey, can you, I've been, I was finally sober. Yeah. And he goes, Hey, you want, you want to go get a drink? I said, I can't drink. I don't drink. Yeah. Really? You only drink a beer. And I remember thinking, God, this guy does not fucking get it. Yeah. So I want to say something to the listeners about when you do get sober, sometimes even the people closest to you, like Will just said, his dad, and I'm getting ready to tell you a quick story about my dad, they don't always recognize it, value it, or remember it. And what I mean by that is the first five to seven years that I was sober, my dad lived in San Antonio, Texas, and I would see him three or four times a year. But every time my wife and I um, would go to San Antonio to see my dad and his girlfriend, we would go out to eat Mexico, Mexican food three or four times a year. We're sitting at the Mexican food restaurant, and for several, several, several years in a row, my dad would look at me and be like, do you want a margarita or do you want a beer? Like the first two or three years I was sober that he did it repeatedly because he forgot, not because he was mad at me or not because he was trying to be rude or not because he was trying to be vengeful or encourage me to drink. He just straight up forgot year after year after year. He forgot that I was, you know, sober and had a two year AA chip and then a three year AA chip all the way up to about six or seven years sober. And he kept doing it, and, and eventually my, his girlfriend and my wife started to get mad at him. And they would yell at him when we were at the restaurant. And he'd be like, oh, you want a margarita or a beer? And they'd be like, Michael, that's my dad's name. They'd be like, Michael, he is sober. He's been sober for six years. Will you please stop offering him alcohol every time you see him? <laughs> and uh, I just remember that. And it didn't bother me because I love him 
care about him and respect him. But I'm just saying to the listeners, um, when you do get sober, even by the people that love, care about you and respect you, they might uh, not value your sobriety as much as you do. So when you get in positions like that where you get offered alcohol after multiple years of sobriety, even by people super close to you, try to do what I did and not take it personal and just realize that they forgot and that maybe they don't remember that you're sober. <laughs> even though it's a big deal to you, you're going to AA every day or going to Smart Recovery or whatever you're going to in AA or you're going to church, however you get sober, got sober. But that was my experience is that I just remember that every year he would offer me alcohol and I was like, dad, I'm sober. I can't do that. <laughs> so let's go back to you and talk about your um, time, your six months and your treatment, treatment center. Yeah. Talk about maybe what well, you the, learned in there and then kind of what happened when you ejected out of there. So the, when I went to the Sierra, I'm sorry, went, went to the Meadows. This is the first, I've been to treatment twice. Okay. It was a six week program. Yeah. And after, and then I did the grief workshop and all this stuff. And I, I really, I mean, I remember mm-hmm. I was, and I can remember being a little embarrassed I can't remember if I was embarrassed I was an alcoholic or I was a drug. Maybe I was an alcoholic because I didn't really understand. Alcohol was, my big thing was cocaine and then pot and then alcohol. Were you aware that you were dual, were you addicted? You, were you aware that you were an alcoholic and a drug addict? Yeah, or? I think I was aware of it. But I remember kind of when you first did there, because you're like, hey, I'm a, you know, a codependent, all this stuff. You would do your little yeah. cleanse. ACAC or H. Yeah, I, but I, I just, but I really enjoyed being, I liked it. I mean, it's, the Meadows was a great treatment center. It was six weeks. I learned a lot. I mean, I processed a bunch of unresolved grief with the rest of my grandfather and all this stuff. Again, when we get into this stuff, it's what, what does it mean to totally surrender? What does it mean to concede your innermost self? And, and I got to experience it what firsthand. And my, this first time was at the Meadows. They said, okay, your aftercare program. We're recommending you go to this halfway house. They do and that. I remember thinking, halfway house? <laughs> I got to get back to Dallas. And right there... I took the reins out of God's hands and I grabbed them. And I said, no, no, I'm not going to go to halfway house. And they remember they talked to me and then they said, okay, right there, I modified the plan. So I get out of the meadows. I come to Dallas. It's April, May of 1988. Start going the old, old Preston group up the stairs with the rickety fans. And I'm hanging out there. I'm 28 years old. Mm-hmm. There's some young people. I had a couple of friends and in, uh, in, in, in one girl that was at, the Meadows was from Dallas, and she had a boyfriend. Some guy was from internationally wealthy family. His name Tommy, mm-hmm. and uh, and he was kind of a cool guy, and had this little clique of friends. Another guy was from Longview, that I knew from uh, from the treatment center. But I come back to Dallas, and I start hanging out with some kids and stuff. But I'd already shot myself in the foot with this thing, and I remember at some point within a few months, I just all of a sudden thought, you know what, I'm going to go get some cocaine, but I'm only going to buy. I'm not going to get an eight ball. You need a little bit. I'm going to get like a quarter gram. That's responsible. So I called, <laughs> so I called this other guy who had decent cocaine. Yeah. The, the guy that had the great stuff was gone. He was already arrested. And I'd lost track with him. Mm-hmm. And so I remember I went and bought a little quarter gram of cocaine. And I just, or half gram. I just snorted a little micro bit of it over a period of days. And I thought, you know, hey, I can control it. And then real quick, real quick, I was back at it like normal. Well, so the girl who was from Dallas in Highland Park, she was a little bit younger than me. She comes back to Dallas, and she had hooked up with this boy named Tommy that was from a real wealthy family. And they were, they were living, he and this other guy from Longview, and him and her were living like over in Abu Dhabi or someplace over in the Middle East because his dad was a big international businessman. And something happened, and he had to leave. It was probably some drug thing. I don't know. They show back up in Dallas. I bump into them. By that point, I'd already kind of relapsed. They had all relapsed. 
and sometimes the, the nicest people in, when you're in your sobriety or in treatment can be monsters when they're on drugs and alcohol. And this guy was just insane. I didn't know at the time he was shooting dope. I'd never shot dope and didn't have a lot of experience with it. But he showed, back, he showed up in Dallas. I'd already relapsed. He came over to the house one day, and I tried to freebase a couple times, never did it. But he showed up, and he could cook freebase, and he smoked crack. And so he comes over one day with crack, and I smoked crack. And again, my third time, hooked. Like, Never snorted cocaine again. I like how you snap every time that you It was do just that. like that. I mean, I remember sitting there vividly. It was the most vivid thing. Smoke, crack. And I went from where I could snort cocaine at night or, you know, spray out to that's all I thought about it. Yeah. Crack, crack, crack. And I went for about wow. a little bit less than a year of totally addicted to crack cocaine. Freebase into where you're pawning stuff. What was your family thinking? Because they just sent you to treatment. Well, now you're on crack. I, I, so why, why? At some point, they found out I'd relapsed. <laughs> yeah, you're my, 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 I remember I was kind of, my mom was kind of like done with me a little bit. Okay. I mean, I still kind of came around. Someone like, well, they just totally cut you off. Yeah. But I didn't have a lot of, at the very end, I didn't have any money. My rent wasn't paid. My electricity. I mean, if I had $20, I wouldn't buy him hamburgers or send it off to get my electric bill paid. And, the la- and some of that stuff is kind of, I mean, it went, you know, it went pretty quick. We're at the very last four or five, six months. And, and a lot of that stuff is kind of blurred out. I was, that's all I did. Yeah. Try to find money, try to find drugs, smoke crack. Did you have to go on the street to find it or were you mostly getting it from that guy? No, 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 that guy didn't. In fact, that guy cut me off. Oh, he said you're a pain and in it, the and ass. He was, he was just selling powder cocaine. You, yeah. you, know, you couldn't cook that. Did he up. show you how to make the crack? No, no, you? no, no. This guy named Tommy, we, and he didn't, yeah. we went and bought crack and okay. he showed me where and I was oh going into hard. And it, I remember one time I showed up at a place, I traded a 45 pistol I had and I traded to these guys. There was, there was area, and, and I was in a neighborhood where I couldn't really go in because I had a, you know, I had a I had a, a old four door Mercedes diesel, mm-hmm. old meaning it was five six years old mm-hmm. probably, and I would go in these neighborhoods and I'd get pulled over immediately. Yeah, white guy. The, yeah, white guy at night. And in so I had a. So I had a, <laughs> What are you doing over here? So I met this black dude who's a friend of mine, and I'd go park at his apartment, yeah. and he'd go walk a couple blocks over to this drug house <sighs> to go get it. And, and so then, and then I'd, you know, we'd, I'd give him some, we'd hang out party and then I'd take some home back to my little, you know, apartment and do drugs. See, that's so sketchy. But then, then at one point there was a, when the, the, the guy over, that guy we used to deal with would run out, we'd go into a real dangerous area where this guy was even freaked out. Uh-huh. And I remember went to these apartments and, uh, and I traded a pistol for some crack. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of days later, I'm coming back and you'd knock on the door and they'd open the door and they'd be pointing a gun at your it's head. Your and it was gun. mine. It was your gun. <laughs> and you'd throw some money on the floor. I mean, it was, it, so he got in. So the one time I almost got arrested is I'm coming out of this real bad, get this real bad urban apartment complex. It's a housing project. Yeah. Notorious for drugs and stuff. And, um, and I'm in my car. I pull out of the parking lot in a, in a single police officer in a cop car sees me. He comes around, pulls me over right there in front of the apartment complex, walks up to me. Now, I don't have a driver's license. Oh, my God. My inspection stickers expired. My license plate's expired. And I had a bunch of crack in those little baggies up in my mouth. Oh my and God. I'd thrown my, my little straight shooter, that little yeah. glass pipe, into the, into the HVAC system. So he pulls me over and he starts asking me questions. And he real quickly goes, what's in your mouth? Oh my Big God. old tough African American dude looked like Superman. He was huge, and he goes, "Get out of the car!" And he 
pulls open my door, grabs me, and he says, spit it out. And it's up in my cheek, and he grabs me in a headlock. And at this point, there's like people gathered around the neighborhood, like this, and he throws me in a chokehold, and he starts slinging me around, and he finally slams him to the ground. He's like, spit it out, spit it out. This is back when, you know, you had an itty-bitty bit of crack because of stupid laws, you'd go to prison forever. Yeah. You could have a pound of cocaine, it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. And I started to spit it out, and all of a sudden he goes, oh, damn it, damn it, you swallowed it. So he, he let me go, he stood up, opened my mouth, shined a flashlight, he didn't see it. So he sits me in his cop car, he chews me out, he gives me a ticket for no driver's license, no insurance, no this, no that, and let me go. I remember driving off, and as soon as I didn't see him in my rearview mirror, I broke open the uh, HV, my air-conditioned vent and pulled out the straight shooter and was smoking crack on the way home. That was the very end, and what got me sober was I went to my sister's christening of her first child. He's, he's six months older than my sobriety. And I show up in San Antonio to go to the christening. I'm one of the godfathers. And my little brother's a godfather, and he had drug and alcohol problems at the time, too. And, and, and then her, and then his, his my, 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 my brother-in-law's older brother, one of his brothers, was also a godfather. Three of us, and we're all drug addicts, alcoholics, still in our youth. And one of his, his, his poor brother passed away from it. My brother's been sober now for a while. But I remember I show up, and my little brother was so horrified because I literally looked like I probably like I had AIDS. I, had, I was not eating. I was just doing drugs. And I didn't take any drugs with me, so I hadn't been sleeping. I, you wouldn't sleep for four or five days in a row. And because I had no drugs, I started crashing. And so I showed up there. It so horrified the family that they, mom, you know, Glenn talked to him, my brother talked to him, and they said, we're going to send you a treatment. Went back to the same counselor here in Dallas, and she said, nope, we're going to go to Sierra Tucson. They got the best cocaine program in the country. And I remember, and I remember just crying. I mean, I was, remember if I talked to the lady at Sierra Tucson, and I remember just breaking down and weeping. And I, and I was sorry, I was done. And so I show up. What did at, you say? Talk, take I just remember, I, I just remember she there. called me up, asked me what I was doing. I just started weeping and said, I'm a dry, I got to have help. I just remember she started to ask me a couple of questions. You know, probably like, you know, people may be like, oh, I only drink a little bit. I remember as soon as she asked me a question, I've always been kind of an honest, open person. I just, it just, the dam broke. Yeah. And I just remember, I just remember weeping on the phone to her. And so I had. You were um, saying, what, tell me what you were saying to her. I just saying, I need help. I'm a drug addict. I, I need, yeah, I need to come. I, I need help. You know, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. And, and, um, you know, and so I, within a couple of days, I'm on a plane. And I remember when I was on a plane, there was that, that dude I was used, I was, you know, my friend at the time in the drug world. And I'd pawned a, a, a ring. And so this girl who was kind of a, used to be a girlfriend, was just a friend, she took me over to the place. I tell the guy, get some crack. I'll be back. We went over and I got my ring out of being pawned. And we came back to this place and I smoked a little crack with him right before I went to the airport. And I went to the DFW airport and she knew, and this is back when you walk people on the plane, walk up to the gate. And she walked me in the plane and stood there. Because I remember sitting on that airplane thinking, I need to get off this plane. I need to get off. But I didn't. Yeah. And she was standing there, turned out, waiting for me to try to do it. Was push back on. <laughs> Corral so you the, back on. So the plane takes off. Takes you to the airport, they pick you up. When you first get there, they check you into like a, the, the hospital, the clinic thing to kind of keep an eye on you. They don't know what kind of situation you are, doing all this stuff. And I remember like a two days later at Sierra Tucson, which is a very, very nice treatment center. Like Ringo Starr had just been there, and there was some, this was the place that he was at. You know, it was big publicity, but it was nice. And I remember eating a, um, 
eating like an omelet, you know, sitting there in this beautiful treatment center thinking, that's it, man, I can't do it anymore. This is my bottom. I just can't. And I knew, I think, because I'd been in the Marine Corps and I'd been through stuff in life where I just knew that it was going to only get worse. And I knew this was an easy out. I'd got, you know, I'd gotten thrown in the headlock by the cop. I was getting real close to getting that. And, and, and I, I was choosing drugs over food. I wasn't eating. I was real thin. I mean, they thought I, they thought I had AIDS. This was 1989. This is back when you had AIDS. It was nothing they could do for you. Yeah. I remember them testing me. Yeah. And I remember freaking out thinking I had AIDS, but I didn't. It was just yeah. malnourishment. Yeah. And I remember I totally surrendered yeah. right there. And I just totally did what they said. So fast forward, that was a four-week program. You know, around week three, they said, let's talk about your aftercare program. We're recommending, we're sending all these, all these people were being sent to a safe recovery house in Atlanta. It's like, fine. Mm-hmm. At this point, everything I had was in storage. There was no going back. And I'd surrender. And that was, to, to me, the two key things is when the treatment center, the first time they said, hey, your aftercare program should be this. Like, oh, wait, 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 wait. No, I'm not going to do that. The second time, I was like, fine. And I went to Atlanta at a day pro you lived in a apartment complex and uh like two guys in a room there were three rooms six guys in the apartment um you went to the day program during the day in the afternoons you got off and you know, i didn't have a car it was a, a month or two before i had my car got out to atlanta and we took you know the marta took train you know the, 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 atlanta had a subway system dallas in the time that was kind of cool and i felt like i was a kid again i mean i went to my class i had no responsibility other than just you know making sure i stayed sober and totally immersed in living with people in sobriety, going to AA meetings, going to the day program. And the day program was really great. It was just, so I, I did a lot of, when I look at all the treatments and stuff, and the day program was like, a, again, four weeks. And I remember they called me in about three weeks into it for a big meeting and like all the counselors and the head guy was there. And I was freaking out, think I did something. And they go, hey, listen, um, we need to talk to you about something. And we hope, and I was like, I mean, I was just, oh my God. Yeah. And they go, uh, we think we need to extend your day program in a couple more weeks. I was like, oh God, y'all scared. I said, I don't, st- of course, yeah. whatever I need. I'm yeah. not going anywhere. I remember just being so relevant. Yeah. Guys, don't scare me. I just had totally surrendered. Yeah. And by totally surrendering me, I just did what people told me. Yeah. And I stayed in that place and they said, get a job after you finish the day program to get the three quarter house. And a lot of people just got a little piddly job just to kind of click, check the box and then get out. And I said, well, I'm not going anywhere. And I ended up getting a job back in the commercial real estate business with yeah. a company that I kept for 25 years <laughs> there in Atlanta. And, and I had the job and I was Did you going to stay in Atlanta. I or? stayed in Atlanta and I was in the halfway house until they called me in again from their meeting yeah. and said, Hey, listen, you need it. You've done great. We need the bed. You need to move on. Okay. I remember like, Oh, I call okay. Like when, like now, like as soon as you can yeah. find a sober roommate. Yeah. And I found a sober roommate. Yeah. And I remember a couple early rules is I was never alone at night. Yeah. Couple times where I had I had to tell one guy that I got hired by this company, I'm living in a halfway house. And I remember telling this one guy that I was in a because I couldn't tell people, you know, I'm a recovering crack addict and trying to get my life back together here at your company. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I worked, but my main priority was AA and getting sober. I remember when they said, get a sober roommate, I got a sober roommate. I knew that being alone at night in a car was danger for me. And I remember only one time being alone because maybe something happened. I had to go from point A to point B back to my apartment. And I remember just like white knuckling, just driving back to my apartment to get in. It was real weird how afraid I was of, um, I mean, I I really had that total, my biggest fear in life was relapsing or using because I knew that meant death. Yeah. And I knew it in my core of my being. 
at the end of your drinking, you're going down this one lane highway as fast as you can towards jails, institutions, and death. Then you get that moment of clarity. You get an intervention through a treatment center or whatever happens in anybody's individual case. And then your your life turns around and you do a 180. Your life does a complete 180. And you start to surrender. You start to go to these meetings. You start to get in the halfway house. You get a job. Do you recall just... Were you excited during that first five, six months of sobriety? Were you scared? Were you surprised? What, what were you thinking during that first five, six months of sobriety? That's a good question, I can tell you. I remember feeling like I was freed from the shackles of bondage. I remember, like, free at last, free at last. Praise God Almighty, I am free at last. I can't tell you how much the end, just the endless rat race of finding money, finding drugs, doing drugs, running out drugs, no money, just this horrific endless nightmare I felt like I was in. There was no fun. It hadn't been fun for a long time. There was no socializing. I was isolated alone doing drugs and alcohol. And when I finally surrendered and went to treatment and I went to the ha- to Atlanta at the halfway house, I had friends. And that's one of the things I love about AA. I saw my dearest friends. There's a lot of us being sent to, to Atlanta from Sierra Tucson. So I knew people from treatment. I had friends. We'd go to the dances. Everybody was sober and people cared. And everybody I knew in Atlanta, except for people at this job, it was Adam Cates, Grubbin Ellis. Other than those guys, everybody I knew was totally was in the program. And I remember early on, because I was about their age, you know, like on a Thursday night, hey, you want to go out? And I'd say no. And they'd kind of, you know. And I remember at some point within a few months, I said, hey, look, I am a recovering drug addict. Yeah. I'm not going, and they never asked me again. Yeah. At some point, I just had to say it. Yeah. Not to be mean, but my sobriety comes first. And I didn't hang around people. I didn't do stuff. And I literally just, my life was AA and the treatment center people and my friends in the program and just work. And, and you know, I'm in Atlanta. I'm a big history buff. We'd go, you know, I mean, I'd be showing buildings and I'd go see it. There'd be a plaque for Battlefield on my one-year anniversary on October the 5th of 1990, my friend and I, we drove down from Atlanta to the Andersonville prison to go see it. I'd never been to that big, famous uh, Confederate prison where all the Union guys were. Uh-huh. And I remember it was during like a government shutdown. I guess Bush was president, 41. And I remember we scaled the fence to run around and just go look at it. Because, I mean, I was free. I mean, I can remember, it's just like a kid. I can remember riding with um, this friend of mine who I got so with, a guy named Chico West, who's real famous. He's, he has his own treatment center. He's a real big counselor now. He was a guest on here two guests ago. Chico, Chico I grew up, he's, he's, his, his brother, his, his dad was a brother to my wife's husband. So I'm related to him through marriage. Okay. And we were in treatment and, and shared a halfway house room together as early sobriety. I got sober with him. Really? Because that's what he, I was going to say, your, your story seems to be running very yes. parallel to his Chico story. and I got sober together. Because he's talking about the same thing. He got shipped to Atlanta. Yeah. And he Chico liked... and I were, he was about a week ahead of me, about two weeks ahead of me in yeah. treatment. Yeah. And he got sober before. So he has a few months on me yeah. as far as sobriety. Because I think he quit drinking for a while and he was trying before he got some Sierra Tucson. Yeah. But I remember he and I, Going out, leaving the treatments, leaving the, the day program, taking a bus to go catch the train, to go see a movie, to go. And we were, it was, I can't tell you how it was free. I was like a kid again. I had no worries. I mean, I just had a place to live. All this horrible nightmarish doom and gloom was gone. Wow. Yeah. I felt the same way. So for the, for the listeners out there, there was a guest on an episode, I believe 16, his name's Chico W. And he, um, 
ran the same pathways as Will as far as recovery, it sounds like, as far as the treatment center and the early uh, halfway house, three-quarter house, uh, way house in uh, Atlanta. I want to make a couple of quick announcements, and when we come out of the announcements, I want you to talk to me a little bit about your uh, first AA sponsor and how did you get one and how that person helped you. So we'll talk about AA sponsorship coming out of the break here, but let's go with uh, the announcements real quick. I want to remind everybody that SoberShares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments and suggestions. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon that can be played back on our next episode of Sober Share. So it'd be kind of cool to hear your own voice on the next episode. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on SoberShares.com. This donation process takes less than one minute and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Think of it like passing a virtual basket to keep Sober Shares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly operating expenses. I want to mention a few of our listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move this project forward in the last five or six days. David R., Stacy P., and Vanessa L. Thank you for that. And I also want to assure you guys out there listening that I value your time and attention as a listener. And our sole focus here at this podcast is to help people. And that guides everything that we do here. Okay, let's get back to our guest. Can you tell me a little bit about your AA sponsor and how did he help you and how did you get one? I think because I went to treatment center, then halfway houses, three-quarter houses. I had a, a sponsor at a place called the Triangle Club in Atlanta. The guy's name was John. But my early, I, I was probably almost a year into my sobriety before I was not in some kind of a formal program, you know, whether it's treatment centers or day program. And, and then the halfway and then the halfway house, the three quarter house. I mean, there was a lot involved. I mean, counselors and stuff early on, that was kind of my sponsorship. I mean, yeah. heavy accountability. Oh yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, I, I mean, I was around for, I mean, it was, I mean, I, I think if I count up the hours of, I mean, it was a lot of hours. I mean, when you're the day program, it was a full day and you had two or three counselors, a lot of accountability and living in halfway houses. You had meetings at night and all that stuff. So it was, once I got out on my own and I was living in Atlanta with a sober roommate, there was a guy named John at um, the Triangle Club and I used him. I think my experience was a little different than somebody that just comes into AA and has no knowledge of this stuff. And I feel for those people. That's why a lot of times when we have these people that come in, I'm like, hey, look, you see all these words on the wall and all this stuff, what does it mean? I remember one time, one or two times early on before I went to treatment, probably 87, I went into an AA meeting and I thought, what is this crazy crap? And I left and I wanted to in an NA meeting one time. I remember I thought, these people, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at the wall and going, how, it, even early, the first time I went to the Meadows, I remember the first couple of days and like the, reading the steps, like, oh, you read them. Okay, I did it. You know, not understanding at all. And, and, and what I'd like to say, and so somebody, let's say you're coming in off the streets, you're coming into the program, your first introduction to AA is walking into a meeting like the Preston Group. You're sitting there, these people are talking about this stuff and the words. And I remember somebody said to me, a counselor at Sierra Tucson, you don't have to understand all this stuff for it to work. I don't understand how this recording system works. I don't understand how a car, I don't understand how my iPhone works. I don't understand electricity. Yeah. Why is it that I can accept everything in my life, except that? But I have to fully understand AA yeah. before I can accept it. 
And I remember the light bulb went off on me, and I sometimes say that. So I got into, I got a sponsor when I was in Atlanta at, 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 uh, at um, the Triangle Club. And when I came back to Dallas, then I got a sponsor. And I came back to Dallas two and a half. Actually, it was, I was working at the company, the retail, and I didn't make myself come to Dallas. I was in Atlanta. The company I was with, they closed down the retail division. I had been at ICSC at a big shopping convention. A guy named, this guy named Mike Friedman, wonderful guy, was the head of the retail division. I met him, and I, you know, I told, he knew that our retail division was closing Atlanta. The, the new manager didn't want to focus on it, only office industrial. And he recruited me. And so I just switched offices. I actually was just transferred. <laughs> God opened that door, and I came back to Dallas two and a half years later. Wow. And, and it just happened. I mean, I didn't force it. The door was, my, one door was closing, this door opened. It was just a natural progression. Were you scared to come back to Dallas? A little bit. I tell you, I was, I tell you there was parts of town where I used to buy drugs and stuff was over at near Lemon Avenue and Hudnall, Lemon and, and Maple right in there. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't even drive in that neighborhood without my hair standing back for years. A couple years later, I actually sold the vacant, I, I was in commercial real estate, I sold the vacant Sutherland building where I used to buy chore boy, that wire shit for the straight shooters in the same block where that guy's apartment was in the block over where the big drug dealer's house was. Didn't even bother me. But the very beginning of my sobriety, I was very careful. So the sponsorship, now I got a sponsor when I came back to Dallas, a guy, an older guy named John. Principles of personalities, there was issues with him I didn't, but he was a great sponsor. It sounds like you were in Atlanta for two and a half years. Okay, so now you're rolling back into Dallas with two and a half years sober and you got to get a new sponsor. What, what's your personal opinion and thoughts on getting a new sponsor? Do you feel like that you need to work the 12 steps over again in order with him? Or do you feel like you can meet with him and be like, dude, I've already done them. Can you just step in and be my sounding board and sponsor? Or do you feel like you need to work all 12 of them then with him? This is just a personal opinion deal. What no, I tell you, I, no, I didn't do that. I, I just, I, I came back to the Preston group, which I knew about from before. Yeah. And, um, and I immediately started going to meetings trying to find the meeting I like the most. It turns out that the noon meeting was kind of my favorite meeting. I love the noon meeting. Why do you love it? I know why I love it. I don't it. know. I just do it now. When I was working, yeah. I couldn't always do the noon meeting. Right. I might have to go in and sit halfway through and get leave at lunch because I couldn't always take out that hour yeah. and a half. Yeah. I mean, you know, hour and a half, two hours of the day to do the noon meeting. I also did the six o'clock meeting. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I liked, I tried this seven thirty in the morning. I could never really make that because I had kids and I was going to work. Yeah. Um, I would do the Saturday meetings and stuff. I like some of the men's, I've never been just exclusive only men's, men's meetings type stuff. Mm -hmm. I've always liked a big mix of people. Yeah. I find I can get something from a 90 year old woman, just like a 30-year-old guy, we're all the same when you boil it down to it. Yeah. Just the outside packages are kind of different. Yeah. The stories are a lot of the same. But when I came back to Dallas, I mean, I had two and a half years of sobriety. I can remember early on in sobriety. I mean, I got a lot of tools. And, and look, if you, you can go to treatment, that gift is there, take it. Very fortunate. I didn't earn or deserve anything in my sobriety or getting to go where I went. But I can tell you that I didn't earn my sobriety. It was a gift from God. But when God gave me that little itty bitty spark of sobriety, like a little one ember mm -hmm. of light, my responsibility was to protect it and blow in it and grow it and protect it. Like, you know, like you're, you're on a TV show and you got to start little, your campfire and the little spark and to build a big campfire. That was my responsibility. Me getting the spark was a gift from God. Like I said, I was choosing food over 
drugs over food. I felt the same way. I had a spark in my soul in early sobriety, and my soul was charred and black due to my excessive drug and alcohol use. And it was a small, tiny part of me that still had a spark inside of me. And I guess that was God. And I did, that part of me didn't want to die. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> I felt that. I felt that. And I was like, okay, well, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cherish this and run with this and protect this and, 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 and see if I can turn this into sobriety. And I was able to do that. And so it's crazy how similar our stories are, yours and I. We don't even really know each other. You're a little bit older than I am. And... Like it's almost identical, except for the halfway house stuff. I didn't ever live there, but um, a lot of the things that you're saying, I'm like, me too, me too, mm-hmm. me too. And the reason I love those noon meetings, I think, is because it's like it breaks up my day. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm awake for a few hours before I do a little bit of prayer in the morning, a little bit of meditation in the morning, a little bit of life's events in the morning, and then I get a nice break in the afternoon. And then a bunch of us usually go to lunch afterwards, mm-hmm. the, the meeting after the meeting. Um, and it does, to me, in my opinion, have a little bit different flavor than the 7.30 a.m. meetings or the 6 p.m. meetings or the 8 p.m. speaker meetings. It's, it just tastes, it feels a little bit different. But I, I love the noon meetings. It's almost impossible for me to get to those 7.30 ones because I don't get, do you get up early? Are you an early yeah, guy? Yeah, no, no, I mean, I, I have. I mean, I was in the service, I was at work, <laughs> and I came. If I can do, now that I'm, I, I'm kind of self-employed and I'm not working for somebody, yeah. um, no, I'm not a crack. I mean, I, you know, I get up sooner or later. But getting up at, getting there at 7.30 means you're leaving the house at maybe 6.50 or 7. And what I didn't like about them is as soon as it's over, everybody's run out the door. Oh, they're going to you work. Didn't have, you didn't have time to sit there and visit with people. Yeah. And... And it just, I just never, when I was in commercial real estate for, I just couldn't, I mean, I was at the office by 7.30 or 8. And uh, it just, it, it was, it was good. It's just a different, the 12 o'clock is, I mean, I've just always liked the 12 o'clock meeting. One thing about it, you're talking about early sobriety, is I felt like I got a second, my life back. And I've used this analogy, and I remember seeing the movie with Tom Hanks, Castaway. And he's on this plane, and the plane crashes, and He's like, all of a sudden, but he wakes up on the beach and he lived. Everybody yeah. else on the plane died. Yeah. And he didn't know how he got there. And that's how I felt when I got, went to Sierra Tucson in October of 1989. I somehow survived all that crap. Yeah. And I was alive. Yeah. And I had my life back. And all the, all the passions and fun. I mean, life is fun. I enjoy it. And in, in, in the garden, you know, talking about, the, and I'm a Christian, the Bible the Garden of Eden, the tree of, you know, eating the apple, the tree of good and evil, all this stuff. Here's the thing that I, I say to people that I either sponsor or newcomers is, you know, first place, what the hell are Adam and Eve doing and hang around the tree? Imagine the Garden of Eden is like the whole world. I don't know. It's probably not just some little, you know, half acre park. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't even be on the same side of the hill as the tree. I mean, you don't sit there and look at the tree and hang around the tree and sh- sleep on the tree and look at the apple and fantasize about the apple. You get the hell away from that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I've always thought that, that with my sobriety, it's, you know, I, I'm super careful with it. The longer I've been so- sober, easier it is. But early on in sobriety, I was learning how to detrigger myself with cocaine. I could early on when I was first, you know, living like in Atlanta, I could walk in a 7-Eleven store. I could, I could see a Playboy magazine at the time I had behind the counter. Playboy, girls, drugs. And I would taste cocaine back in my mouth. I had a rubber band. I knew how to detrigger myself. Money, a $100 bill could trigger me. Early on in sobriety, it was, I mean, I had a rubber, I was so careful. I, thing, and I learned about triggering and being in places and being alone at night. Somebody told me that one time. I remember that. I could not be alone at night in a car. It was just too scary. Yeah. And, and, and so all those tools that I learned in sobriety and treatment, 
you know, when, when, I, when, I, when I'm around young people or newcomers now, I mean, those were things I, I, I learned, but I, I was lucky that my bottom was bad and that crack, as bad as it was, I wouldn't have gotten sober without going through that type of, of drug addiction because there was, no, there was no thinking I could still do it. There was no, you know, there's no fun. Like, oh, what the, you know, Dallas Cowboys are going to the Super Bowl this year. I'm going to miss the Super Bowl party and drink, you know, or going to the beach, the Corona commercial, the two people sitting on the thing with a Corona ball of sweat. I realized that first place, if I was using, I never would have gotten to the beach. I never would, because I would have been locked away, smoking drugs, trying to find another dollar to buy some more drugs. Yeah. And the, all those alcohol commercials are no more realistic than the commercial you get the car and the It's all marketing garbage, mm-hmm. you know? And even if it is true, it ain't for me. Yeah. That's, that doesn't speak to me. That's not my reality. Yeah. I never drank like that. Yeah. I never drank with one beer and had friends and laughed and roasted marshmallows by a campfire. Yeah. That shit didn't happen. I think about sometimes that, that maybe, um, I'll just say this, hopefully this is not too controversial. I feel like that drinking and recreational drug use might be a privilege for some people to do that. And maybe some people can handle that. It's not a right. And so what I say in my look back in my own life in hindsight is that I so frightfully abused the privilege of recreational drinking and maybe even recreational drug use. I abused that privilege so mightily and, and just demonstrated such an ill ability to handle that type of stuff that I am no longer eligible for that type of behavior. That's what I tell myself. I was yeah. like, Mike, you cannot, you cannot play in that area because you've demonstrated over and over and over again that you can't handle it. You can't do it. You can't mm-hmm. recreationally drink. You can't recreationally do use drugs. You take it to the extreme and you run your life into the ditch and things don't go well for you. So I just don't even mentally play with it. Um, have you ever sponsored yourself for an exp- extended period of time in sobriety and how'd that work out for you? I've never sponsored myself, but I've had sponsors but what I didn't have was that sponsorship that first time you walk in raw, because that was in treatment and through halfway house and stuff. But I've had sponsors, but I've already had worked the steps. I already had two years of sobriety yeah. or maybe a year and a half of sobriety. Yeah. Because up until then, I mean, I was, you know, the CR2, they had meetings at the, the halfway house. And so it was a little different experience than purely walking in and my hat's off because I don't know. I couldn't have done that, especially being hooked on crack. Yeah. I could not have just gone. I, I, I had to do what I do. I had to, I, everything worked out perfect. When I surrendered and turned my total life and will over the care of God, he took me out of Dallas. I went to Arizona. From Arizona, I went to Atlanta. And I stayed there until God opened the door to come back. And when I came back, I was very aware of all the people I did drugs with. Who knows what happened to them? I had a couple friends, but I, but I didn't even hang out with my old friends when I was smoking crack. The only guy I know was Tad, who you've interviewed, mm-hmm. who's now in our program and done great, 10-something-plus years of sobriety. The first time I smoked pot, yeah. I took it to those friends. Tad was one of them. Yeah. He was the same thing. He immediately got hooked. When I got thrown in jail those two times towards the end, in the end of 88, before I went to treatment, he was the guy I called and he bailed me out. Really? And I had the privilege of him calling me two times, one time a number of years ago to come into AA, and I entered, brought him in, and then he didn't stay. And then the second time when he finally was done, and I brought him in, and, and I said, you need to get a sponsor. You're the guy that he was talking about? And I took him, and I knew Big Scott was a tough, no-nonsense guy. Yeah. And I said, he needs to be your sponsor. Oh, my God. I felt like I've had a, my gift, one of my gifts in AA 
is I'm a good matchmaker. Yeah. I've matched, and, and I've had a few ladies, yeah. females who call me. I didn't even know they were like, had alcohol and drug problems. And they would call me like, cause they knew me. I'm pretty open about it. I don't tell my dirty, but people know. They yeah. either, my personality type doesn't seem like I was a teetotaler just ever drank. So yeah. I'm like, hey, I'm sober. I don't give, but, and I've had people out of the blue just call me up and say, hey, I, one lady, a couple times, ladies calling. And I immediately would just immediately bring a lady over and try to help, you know, hook them up with some female. But that's funny. Yeah, Tad was, yeah, <laughs> I've known him got, since we were kids. You've got a lot of lifelines to a lot of uh, guests that uh, have been on this podcast and they mentioned you, but I didn't know they were talking about you. Um, have you ever had the desire to drink or use drugs uh, return since you've been sober? I mean, like, I mean, besides the commercials and stuff, I've had it happen to me maybe in the last 21 years I've been sober, maybe, maybe three times. And all three of those times were kind of during my first year. And I won't go into too much detail about them, but they were, they came on quickly and unexpectedly. And then the desire to, to use um, faded and went away quickly because I immediately started praying. I immediately yeah. started praying. And there's different tools you can use. You can call a support uh, person in your life or a sponsor or start praying or get in your car and get the hell out of there wherever you are when that desire to drink. Has, has that ever happened to you where you've, you've wanted to use or drink again? I mean, I know that you were talking about being scared driving at night or around the drug-addled area. I, I, I could get triggered. And, and I tell you, the early on, triggered means I could taste the cocaine in the back of my throat. Yeah, what are we talking about with the rubber band? I had yours? a rubber band, and you would uh, you would snap it, okay. and it kind of, and then I would <laughs> say the Serenity Prayer or start doing, you know, just and, and just using some of the tools or, you know, doing the 12 steps or getting the hell out of there or whatever it took. Yeah, get into a meeting. I was somebody. very fortunate that I was in, like I said, in a treatment, in a halfway house, in sober living, in a yeah. sober roommate. And so I had that, but I did have a... F- I never like, I mean, there's been one time, like if I'm sitting, my, I have a, I'm remarried now, wonderful wife, and she's normal. I and mean, she drinks a little half a glass of wine. She's a totally normal person about it. I remember one time when I first, when I was young, I went to a wine tasting with some girlfriend. And I remember I got so, you know, you just to take a little sip and spit it out. I mean, I just drank a glass of wine. I was so drunk then. So it was, but I, still, I don't like things. to have, my wife keeps a little bit of wine yeah. in like a little refrigerator wine refrigerator uh-huh. that doesn't bother me we'll have uh, we've had like thanksgiving or something and she'll have some beer i do ask her to get and not that i was a big beer drinker but i don't like having beer around i i'm very careful i'm not around drugs and alcohol no drugs at all um now that pot is so prevalent i was in new york i just got back from new york city which i'm up there quite a bit and you can smell it when you're walking around there but if i smell that stuff i just kind of hold my breath and walk quick yeah it's, I'm not triggered. I just have a, it's, it's a recoil from it because to me, I was enslaved to it and it just doesn't, I mean, I just, I just think about just that desperate, lonely pit of hell I came from. And yeah. so I, I, I feel like I was lucky of that. I know the first time I went to treatment, I mean, it didn't take much and I was back at it. You know, it got so bad the last time that I just, but I'm careful too. I tell you where I'm real careful at any kind of a party. I mean, I get a I get a bottle of water, and, I, and if I set the water down, I don't know where it is. I go get another one. I'm super careful about picking, going to some. And I've heard people like I'm at a drink, I'm at a party, and I pick up a drink, and you know somebody's some function, and it had alcohol in it. I've always been real fearful of that stuff, and 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 I've been super careful. And that's one of the things I preach to people in the build, in newcomers is you got to watch out. You know, you go to somebody's wedding, or you go to some kind of function at a company party, and everybody's drinking. And if I don't feel comfortable, I leave. 
I'll tell somebody, hey, I'm, and, and like I said, Mike Friedman, my guy I worked for for 20-something years, we were partners in Dow. He knew, he knew my story. And I always was honest with people, and I found out if you're honest with people about it, they understand. I wanted to talk to our listeners for a second. If you're still drinking and drugging and you feel like you're getting towards the end of your drinking and your drugging and something's about to happen, either you're going to die or you're going to get sober or you're going to go to jail or whatever, I want to speak to the listeners that uh, are going to be transitioning into sobriety soon. And so if you're living that rock crusher lifestyle and you're out there, I want you to really commit to memory what it looks like, what it smells like, what it tastes like, and what it feels like to be dying of active alcoholism. I don't want you to forget where you are right now. I want you to commit to memory and burn it and sear it into your brain and your soul, how much pain that you're in, all the drama that you're going through, because that's part of the gasoline that you're going to use in your sobriety engine when you're sober 5, 10, 15, 25, 35 years down the road. I want you to have high-definition 1080p memories of what it looks like, feels like, tastes like, and smells like to be dying of active alcoholism. I'm 21 years sober, and I can tell you with precision what my last few years were like. And I remember how I felt. I remember what my body looked like. I remember the things that I had to go through on a daily basis to secure the financial means to execute my alcoholism and drug addiction at a high level. And for me, that looked like uh, crime, like I had to commit crime or embezzlement. Or, um, well, that's probably the only two I could think of. <laughs> I can only think of crime and stealing and embezzlement to finance my lifestyle. Um, the people that I was hanging out with at the end of my drugging and drinking career, I'll just name out some things that I was doing as people. I was, hanging, I was hanging around with homeless people. I was hanging around with scumbags. I was hanging around with criminals. I was hanging around with prostitutes. And I was hanging out with a bunch of ne'er-do-wells. And the reason why is because my life had fallen apart to such a level and my consumption of alcohol and drug had taken on such a, a high high level of intensity that those were the people that, that I was just surrounding myself with. And I don't have anything against those people if you're out there and you're doing that. You know, I was right there with you, brother. I was right there in the trenches with you. Um, I am not there today uh, because I guess God doesn't want me there today or my higher power doesn't want me there today. He wants me in a different place now. And the only reason that I think that I'm still alive literally is to bring hope and help to people. Um, to bring inspiration to people. And that's a huge part of the reason why we're doing this podcast. Uh, we are not making money off this deal. We are not getting famous off this deal. We are not getting any kind of book deals or TV deals. There's nothing going on in the background. The sole and only reason that we're here making this thing is to provide hope and inspiration to the people out there that are lost and that are seeking. So if you're out there, I just want to tell you that I love you. I care about you. Hopefully you come into recovery soon, but please don't um, regret the past that you're currently in, your current situation. Don't regret the past or shut the door on it because I tell you that's going to be part of the gasoline that you're going to use in your sobriety engine moving forward just to remember these dark days that you might be in right now. So I just wanted to take a minute and talk about that. Um, hey, Will, do you have any AA heroes or mentors? And if so, how are they important to you? Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob. I'm a big history buff, and I've read all the early histories of them. I think that when they came together and they founded this program and they wrote the big book, I don't think they really even knew what they birthed. I mean, I think it's so beyond them. I don't think, I mean, they birthed this thing, but I do believe it was divinely inspired. I believe that it's bigger than them, and I believe that they, once they put it down on paper, they were learning and growing from it just like we do. Mm -hmm. I th it, it's, it is an actual total miracle. I think it's probably one of the biggest things that happened in the 20th century, 
is the, the birth of AA because it's saved millions and millions and millions of people from a certain death and alcoholism and drug addiction. You look back at early history, you know, the Washingtonians and suffragette, I mean, uh, and, and, um, and temperance movements and stuff. They didn't, they, they, they kind of had the idea, but they didn't have what AA founded. And, and again, it's just one of those miracles of, you know, God, I think. And, and I, so I, there would, they would be heroes of mine. As far as the, uh, is it individual people? It can I mean, be anybody you want. It can be anybody yeah, you want. I mean, any I've heroes got, or mentors. Anybody. I mean, I'd look, I, I can say, you know, Tad. I mean, here's a kid guy that's been... Oh, I've he's going to love this. No, I mean, seriously. I mean, the guy's done great. Yeah. The guy walked in off the streets. I mean, he came in there. I mean, he's now the chairman of our club. He does all this service work. And he's taken... It just shows you that. I mean, and I remember Tad as a kid. When we were kids. He's always been a very organized, diligent type person. But drugs and alcohol steal us from ourselves and our families everything we're, and our we're, work everything we're, yeah. we're in i was enslaved i was in bondage to it and 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 i look at people like that and i look at you know i mean some there's some you know famous people that have some sobriety and, and you hear about but i think you know really for me as far as heroes and stuff i mean i have heroes that may be in history and stuff but i think you know bill wilson his story is incredible and the fact that he founded and put this thing together but he didn't even really realize what he was doing because it was so much bigger than anybody. Tad, we love you. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit for the first time on this podcast in episode 18 um, about something called the 12 traditions. And as Will was just mentioning, Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson were uh, some of his AA heroes. And so after AA was established and going through uh, some success and some growth and also some growing pains, something called the 12 traditions were birthed and written down. And what I'd like to do now is I'd like to read you the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time on this podcast. Here we go. Tradition one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends on AA unity. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Six, an AA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprises. Less problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, AA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible for those they serve. Ten, Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all of our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Um, I wanted to switch lanes and go to step 11 and talk about step 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Can you talk to us a little bit about the different styles and forms of meditation and prayer that you're using today? I've said this before, too, is that you know I grew up going to church and all that stuff, but I never really realized the, how to practically apply 
you know, God in my life until I came to the program. One thing to talk about prayer and meditation, and that was something I definitely 100% had to discover through getting sober. Prayers, when you're talking to God, meditations, you're being quiet and listening to them. Meditation is not necessarily like what the, you know, some thing you're seeing on the movie or some yogi or something. I was very fortunate. We sat there and did meditation stuff when I was in treatment for the second time at uh, Sierra Tucson. We'd lay there and they would, we'd do these exercises and I learned how to quiet my mind and, and how to meditate and try to listen to God. And also the part about prayer and it sorts what, you know, his will for us. And, and one thing that I grew up with and, you know, is people like, you know, praying, whatever it is, God help me, you know. One thing is learning not to pray for God help me. You know, I want a new car. I want this. It's what it means is you pray for God, for God's will in your life. God, you know, whatever the will is, help me. You know, I want to help me get through this. But understanding that that God knows so much more about your life or what's good for you, and not that you want to let God kind of reveal the path for you, and not necessarily pray for just things. But praying, though, let's say if I'm worried about something, you know, I'm worried about my kid or something, or and just, dear God, please help, you know, Susie make the team or my brother, whatever. And then you quit thinking about it. But I kind of grew up where prayer was kind of like this, pray for it, pray for it, pray for it, pray for it. And I know now that's obsession. Praying for something is, you know, God help me, you know, if this job is the right job, if I do the interview, if I get it. You know, help me. And then you quit thinking about it. You move on. You go about your day. You, it, it, because I have, we, I, have a, I can have a very obsessive mind. And I had to learn that through, through sobriety was what it meant to prayer and meditate and what it meant to, um, you know, for God's will in my life. And, and, God's, and, and I learned that through the application of surrendering and went to treatment. When I went to treatment, they sent me to Atlanta. I stayed there. And I ended up loving Atlanta. When I got the job, I stayed there until the door shut and came back to, to, to Dallas. So that's what it meant for me to let, turn my life will over the care of God, do the next right thing, take the first step, but turn over God and pray that it's, it's going to be okay. And, and I've been freed even going through this pandemic, you know, living one diet, day at a time. I mean, I had to realize I'm not in control. I'm not going to worry about all this stuff tomorrow. I'm not going to do the what ifs. And through that, you know, I know that most of the people in the program seem to psychologically do better. People had some sobriety than people, even normal people. They were all freaking out what's going to happen, what's going to happen, I'm going to do this. Because all we have is one day. And I know I'm not in control of my life. God is. And it seemed to have helped. So that's something I know I'm kind of rambling, but I'd learned that lesson about Christianity and the and spirituality and all that stuff through the program and what it meant to surrender and turn your life over the care of God. Because awesome. I had to do that when I was in treatment in halfway house. I had the exact opposite experience, kind of, because I grew up in a house where I did not believe any of that stuff that I was told as a child at church and anything like that. So when I got to uh, sobriety and they started talking about prayer and meditation to me, I was like, okay, well, I don't have anything that I need to, you know, I'm a fresh slate. I don't know what to do. They're, just tell me. And, the, and I had the same experience in treatment as you is we had guided meditations, you know, where they would, everybody, lay, I went to Timberlawn and they'd be like, okay, everybody lay down on the floor and they dim the lights. And then she would do a guided meditation and she'd be like, pretend that you're in a dark forest and you're walking through and now you see a lightning bug and there's a beautiful oak tree in a pond and it was it was very it was I thought it was cool I enjoyed that I enjoyed that imagery but then I got out and the more that I stayed sober I started to have different sponsors that were in different types of meditation and um, guided meditations walking meditations seated meditations a lot of people get into it through yoga now 
uh, my sponsor who's passed away, Jimmy Daniels, he would go to monasteries and he would stay there for three or four or five days and he would do silent retreats. So there's so many different yeah. styles and the, and the, the libraries of the world are full of so much as a treasure trove of information and human history and experience in all the different religious lanes about how to pray and meditate. So there's so much out there to devour and investigate as a human being on this planet. And with the internet, it's even better because mm-hmm. we can just dig in that much more and learn about the different types of prayer and meditation. Can you um, give us an example of a tough challenge that you've had in your life that the 12 steps help you with, help you overcome? Can you think of anything? That- yeah. So I was, um, I guess I was 18 years sober and uh, I'd been gotten married and had two little kids the lady I was married to, uh, met her in the program, and she didn't stay sober in and out. I got divorced, and her boyfriend slash attorney was a family law guy, and they pretty much tried to set up this whole thing, trying to... I went through a real scary time with this thing, and, and they threatened to lose a custody of my kids when, realistically, I'd been, really, I'd been the one who had been there for them, because she'd been out you know, doing what we do when we're not sober. And I can remember being, when I first got filed on divorce and had to leave my house and I moved in with my mom, I'm 49 years old. And I can remember being as scared and strip raw as the day I went into treatment. And my sponsor, and I I used this guy so much at the time. I mean, I would call him up morning, okay, get up, take a shower, call me back. Okay, go eat something, go to work. I mean, I just literally one step, one second, one minute at a time. And I was so afraid. What's going to happen there? What if they try to do this? I mean, this didn't happen. I'm not going to prove, you know, all that. You just stop, stop, you know, just, just quit thinking about that stuff. And I was so afraid and I had all these insurmountable hurdles just to try to get to the point where we would even start this divorce process. Cause I was, they were trying to accuse me of stuff. And it was, it was basically a tactic from a guy who was a family law attorney who knew how to try to, you know, just bring somebody to their knees and I remember just laying in bed within a couple of days of this thing. I was so afraid. I remember my attorney would say, well, we're going to do this. I remember thinking, oh, no, don't do that. I'll make him mad. And I remember in this guy, this, my sponsor was helping me just go through this stuff, just let it go, go back to steps, using all the steps except for the word alcohol, I put in, you know, the divorce, this issue. And I remember laying in bed one night, and I just remember praying, Lord, take away this fear. And I remember vividly this tingling, just kind of... And I'm not a burning bush person. I'm a creep, but just swept through me. And I didn't have that fear. I mean, I literally just didn't have that gut-wrenching, paralyzing, I couldn't eat fear. I remember I woke up the next morning and I called my attorney. I said, look, you do what you got to do. I'm not afraid anymore. But call me. I'm only going to think about this if I have to do something. If I got to take a step, I got to be somewhere, you let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to clear my mind of this whole process. And I did that. And within 24 hours, the whole thing they were doing fell apart. I had my kids back in my house. I had my kids back with me. And the divorce took, you know, a number of months. It went by kind of quickly. And I literally didn't think about it unless I got the phone call or the text. And I meant a little fear of the phone rings or the message. But I got through this thing. But from a paralyzing, I couldn't eat. I couldn't even, it was like, oh, I couldn't even hardly function for the couple of days to having that moment where God just kind of, I mean, it was, that was definitely touched by God, just kind of swept through and that fear went away. And then I was like, okay. And so I applied these steps. 
I was like, I'm only going, let me know when I got to do some, take it one minute, one hour, one second, one day at a time. I can't think about what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. Because when I lay in bed at night and I do the what ifs, it never ends that Will lives happily ever after. It's always horrible. It's disaster. It's whatever. And I can remember that that was a real vivid thing. That was a big, and I got through a really tough time with, uh, with um, my, uh, in my sobriety. Never thought about drinking and drugging. St- started going to meetings two, three times a day. And really just kind of fell back in. I've always had my AA friends. And, and, and I, um, I didn't go through as a, you know, 49, 50 year old guy when I first got divorced, that a lot of these guys, you know, they're out partying, going out with girls and stuff. I didn't do nothing. I was, I'd been through that empty chase as a young man. And I just went to my A friends and I hung out and I had female friends who were totally just friends, little pat treatment center, hug, pat on the back type stuff. That was it. <laughs> until I met my current wife like a year and a half later and we took it slow and, and I got through a lot. I've gotten through a lot in life, but the program, it, I'm going to say, I'll say this one thing. I remember being early on five, six years surprised and some guys got 20, 30 years saying, what, 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 are, what are they still doing here? You know, what is, and I didn't realize that the longer I've stayed sober, the less it's been about drugs and crack and drinking as it is about life. It's all the stuff that we have to do. It's, it's about our, you know, we're all kind of, I think a lot of us are wired the same. It's not, you know, flipping out because a lady was looking at her phone and she missed the light, you know, or, you know, I, I got the, you know, I can be walking like into a sandwich shop maybe for lunch and you see, you know, 13 high school kids going in front of you and my intentions are to run ahead of them. So I beat them. All that, and I have to use the steps for all that stuff. And the big things too, like going through divorce or, you know, when you have children, I mean, there's a lot there, but the longer I've been sober, the more I've realized that the steps are more and more powerful and deeper than just not drinking and drugging. It's about everything in life. And it's the foundation of my life. I would say I wouldn't be here. And my friends in AA, I know people who I don't even know their last name. You could call them at three o'clock in the morning and they would get it dressed and come get you. I don't know any place else in the world that does that. Yeah. And there's a lot of people. Church is wonderful. Church is great. But I can tell you, if you're, if you're in Sunday school and you're walking out, so go, hey, Bob, how's it going? You go, man, my life's falling apart. They're like, okay, see you later. Yeah. I can call, you could call somebody at two o'clock in the morning, not even know their last name, and they will get in their car and come get you. That's, That's what this program's about. I agree. Yeah, a lot of people speak to it as a design for living and a foundation and a structure for, for dealing with life on life's terms, which a lot of us have not had a lot of high-level skill at when we're drinking and drugging. So it's nice to come into a program and come into recovery and have uh, a nice design for living, a structure there ready for you to step into, and you have to learn how to wear life like a loose garment. Mm-hmm. And I was not skilled in that technique of learning how to live and, and wear life like a loose garment. And I started to hear, hear things in early sobriety. Well, Mike, you need to just let that roll off of your back like a bead of water off of a duck's back. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then I realized that ducks, ducks and ducks feathers are waterproof. And when water gets on them, it just rolls right off Teflon. I was like, okay, that's a weird metaphor, but yeah, I need to learn how to let that roll off my back like a piece of water on a duck. And when I got sober in Oceanside, California, I got sober at a group called 1919 Apple Street in Oceanside, California. But there was this other place I used to go to in Oceanside, another AA club called the Moose Lodge. And I don't remember the girl's name, but she had about three years sober and I had about six months sober. And she was talking one day in a meeting and she was talking about her horribleizer that she had in her mind. 
And I was like, what is she saying? Horribleizer. And she was talking about how like she would take a situation, whether it was financial or romantic or had something to do with work or any, any kind of ancillary uh, idea or thought. And she would run it through her horribleizer and her brain and it would uh, stress her out. And she would think of all the different scenarios and outcomes and how it stressed her out and it wasn't a good tool for living and then as she was talking at first I was like what and then after that I was like oh my god I think I kind of do the same thing I was like I think I kind of do the same thing I think I do have a little bit of a horribleizer in my brain and I need to figure out first I need to a realize that it's there and then b realize it's not good for me and then c realize how am I going to disarm that and the way that I was able to disarm that was through developing a, a faith and a, and a power greater than myself to where I feel like I had to reach the point where I was like, hmm, I'm going to be, first of all, God loves me. Second of all, I'm going to be okay no matter what, wife or no wife, job or no job, money or no money, homeless or have a mortgage in a nice house, kid or no kid, dog or no dog. It doesn't matter what my circumstances are. God loves me. He's going to take care of me. I'm going to be okay. And I started to receive something I had never received ever, which is a deep seated in a deep feeling that I was going to be okay no matter what. And that God loved me. And I, I, maybe I was looking for that. I think maybe I was looking for that my whole life and in early adulthood and teenage years, alcohol and drug addiction seemed like that was going to give me that it gave me the mirage that I was going to be okay and that everything was going to be all right. And I rode that train for a very long time, for a very long number of years, until I ran into the ditch and realized that uh, I was an alcoholic and a drug addict and needed help, and I sought out help. And now I do have that deep-seated faith and calmness that I'm going to be okay no matter what. And it comes through my relationship with my higher power, and it, it just comes all as a direct derivative of having faith on a deep level. You've mentioned it a couple times. I wonder if we can dip into the topic of how... Um, Going to meetings is important for you and your program. I've known you for a few years, and I see you at meetings a lot, and I'm proud of you for that. I want to say that. You have long-term sobriety. I see you at meetings a lot. I see that your frequency is high. So can you explain to the listeners a little bit about why still going to meetings is important for you? Yeah, one thing, I love the word horribleizer. That's kind of that's exactly what we do. I mean, I've, but um, I tell you, meetings, one, but if they're connected, it's just, I mean, I drank and drugged every day. You know, I mean, and I don't go to meetings every day, but it's just such an integral part of my life. I mean, one, it's, it's, you know, it keeps me connected. I pick up new things like, you know, what I, I call it the what ifs. And you just use the word horribleizer. It's so, I mean, I, that's like, I was like, Bing, that's great. I mean, I'll use that because that's what we do. But so I go to meetings and I always hear something that's good. I can, you know, feel blue or whatever and maybe not grateful. And you go to meetings and it just resets your whole day. I've got a wife I love. I've got some kids. I've got a few friends. But I'm not around a group of 30 people that often, you know, unless I'm in the AA meetings. I've got 30, 40, 50 people I see a couple times a week, all walks of life, all ages, you know, male and female. And, it, and it's like, you know, a country club or my social. It's such an integral part of my social life and my sober life. I can't really imagine my life without being in meetings and being in sober. I know I wouldn't have a life without it, but it's just, I mean, I look forward to it. Like I love the Monday meeting, the Friday meetings and 
and I'll go to other meetings. There's different ones. There's always been a couple since I've been sober, a few of my favorite meetings, but like I always try to bait the Monday meetings unless I'm here. When I'm in New York, and I've gone around the world, I mean, I've been to other countries and I've gone to meetings and it's really cool when you go to them. I've been to other cities like in Colorado or or in California. I've never been to one Oceanside. Actually, it was in the Marine Corps. We were out near in Oceanside, Camp Pendleton. But I've been to meetings around and it's really interesting. You can walk in some meeting I mean, I was in a meeting in Paris, France a couple of times. We've gone there a bunch. But um, you can walk into a meeting. You're just within a couple of minutes. You're back with your people. It's like you can be in a strange city. You can be, you know, it's an English-speaking meeting. Or you can be in a different town. And you go to AA, and it's just like you're there. The meetings are set up different. The faces are different. Maybe the way they start the meeting off. You know, they're all a little different. But it's amazing how the meetings, it's just like a connection. It's just, you know, it, it's just our people, and everybody's open, and we get visitors all the time. When I go to some city, especially when I be there for a while, it really grounds you. I got a couple of meetings I go to when I'm in New York City, and I love them. I'm going to kind of get off topic for a little bit, but talk about meetings. I know during the pandemic, when everything first happened, everybody shut everything down. I know that we had some going back and forth about reopening AA. When I saw that the bars were open and the restaurants were open, I started raising hell because the current guy at the time, they were real scared about doing meetings, what it is. And I was like, hey, I don't give a crap what it is. And, and thank God for Tad, because Tad was elected chairman. We opened the meetings. And, and, and I was in New York. In June and July, the meetings were still closed. Now, maybe some of them were open somewhere. I couldn't find them. I know that the Perry Street and Mustard Seed were closed. And that was a year into it. And, and I think that that is the meetings are so important that I can tell you that either this is AA and it's what we say it is, or it's a fancy book club. And as long as a bar's open, a restaurant's open, a grocery store's open, a gas station, AA needs to be open. Because I don't know, you know, I know there's a lot of people that relapsed, a lot of people didn't make it through the pandemic because being an alcoholic and drug addict, being alone and afraid and isolated and hiding in your house is bad for you. And take the precautions you got to take, do what you got to do. But I can tell you, I was so glad when we opened up, and I really felt, uh, I was felt really felt concerned and kind of angry the fact that when I went to New York back in the summer, they were still closed a year later, only on Zoom. And I know that I I couldn't have gotten sober on Zoom. You know, I know most people couldn't sit there in their house alone on a looking at their telephone on a little video screen mm-hmm. and get sober. 30 years sober? Yeah, I mean, you're sitting there, you can sit up, you know, on your balcony or in your house and, you know, do a Zoom call and see your friends. That's different. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how people got sober. The meetings are so important. First place, it's my lifeline. It's where I reconnect with people. It's where I see my friends. And I need to hear it. I need to be there. Yeah. You know, it's not like I'm forgetting I'm a drug alcoholic, but it's just such a part of me. I mean, I don't even know... I can't imagine my, I mean, me going to meetings and being an alcoholic drug addict is as much a part of my core being as my name is Will. I feel like uh, I had the same experience. I traveled a little bit during the pandemic here and there, and everything was closed wherever I went, in Colorado, California, all the places I went. I would go to the clubhouses, and I would knock on the door, and the places were deserted. And that made me sad, especially when I was in Crested Butte. I wanted to, mm-hmm. to go to meetings there, and then I went to Steamboat, in Colorado and they were closed and I was just sad. 
we're reopened here in Dallas on, on a pretty wide scale level now, but I know that there's a lot of people that are still at home that are scared to come to meetings, and I, I, I hope they come it, back soon. I'll and that, you know what? That. That's fine. That's why we have Zoom. You yeah. can have both. Nobody's saying you got to go to a meeting. Right. But the meetings need to be open, yeah. in my opinion. If the gas station is open or grocery stores open for people who need the meetings. Yeah. And you're right. I think Zoom is a wonderful thing. Yeah. I think we're always going to have it. Hybrid meetings, Zoom meetings. Mm-hmm. But I think it is literally, I mean, I think AA or some of the big wigs up and wherever need to do a little soul searching on that. That, sure, when we first closed down, everybody thought the world was ending. But once we realized you could, you know, once you could walk into a restaurant and get us something to eat, or you could stand six feet from somebody in a grocery store, yeah. we need to figure out how to have a meeting if it's sitting out a parking lot or whatever. A lot of people were scared and they locked this stuff down. We were lucky we opened up. I understand if people don't want to go, but it needs to be open for people who do. Yeah. And if it's one person, we need to have those places open. Yeah. Can you look at that list of uh, promises there in front oh, of you yeah. and see if you can um, give us an example of one of the promises coming true in your life? Well, I, yeah, I can tell you. Man, I love the promises. I can tell you. Okay, we're not going to get the past and wish to shut the door on it. I don't regret my past. I, don't, I wouldn't want to repeat what I had to go through, but I wouldn't be the person I am without going through what I went through. I don't shut the door on it because I've been able to, it's helped me be a better, you know, person and father and friend and brother and husband. And, uh, and, and I've helped people. I mean, I'm not, you know, some great saint, but I can tell you, I've had people, just normal people out in the world who've come to me about, I didn't even know they, I barely even knew who they were. I just knew them at a school function or something, um, or people I grew up with, but the promises, a new freedom, a new happiness, you know, not regret shut the door, put, or, or not regret the passage of the door on, on door, and it will comprehend the word serenity. Will know peace. I mean, all these things have come true. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how um, self-seeking will slip away, our whole attitude and outlook on life will change. I mean, it's all come true, and it's it's amazing how this stuff does come true. Now, when you first walk into AA and you're sitting there and you're brand new and you don't have you've had no exposure. Like I, I did it one or two times before I went to treatment. I mean, it was just bewildering to me. It was just these words and people are talking <laughs> about this people? stuff and all this stuff, the promises and, you know, people, you've heard people all the time talk about, you know, the little sayings like let go and let God and easy does it. That was something that I've always, when we have newcomers, I try, if I get called on a speaker, I get the opportunity to speak. I always say, you don't have to understand why this works for it to work. And again, I don't understand how my cell phone works. I have an iPhone. I do a million things. I have no concept how it works. I just accept it. So why do I have to figure this out? Yeah. But it does work. The promises will come true. Yeah. But you got to do what you, you have to follow the program and turn your wife will of the care of God. And that means how does God speak to me in AA? Through my sponsor, through people in the program, through the group conscious, through a treatment center, through my counselors. And I... Because Will's way got me hooked on crack and drugs and alcohol. Yeah. The other way, I got, I got liberated my freedom back. And the promises do come true, and I love them. I like that part. Um, well, I actually hate it. I say I like it. Well, I love it, and I hate it. But you remember that part in the big book that always talks about, I think it's on page 63, but it talks about how the alcoholic is self-centered uh, to the extreme, though he usually doesn't think so. Yeah. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, how dare you? 
Because they kept calling me selfish, and I was like, I'm not selfish. And they're like, look at that. It's like alcoholic self-centered to the extreme, though he doesn't use things. So I was like, hmm. Yeah, true. It's not very nice. Um, so let's talk about the literature for a minute. I know that you had some stuff in your uh, phone. Um, is there anything that you have memorized or anything that you have in your phone or any literature that you want to talk to us about? Any favorite passages out of any any literature? It could be the Bible. It could be the big book. It could be the Koran. It could be the 12 and 12 or, you know, how to win friends and influence people. I don't know what you're reading. Anything, well, anything yeah, in the I literature just, you're I, I love the, the Bible. I mean, I'm not... You know, some people can memorize a thousand verses into this. I mean, I I know the Bible. I've, I've you know, there's a lot of things. You know, one thing is, you know, God's not going to give you anything more difficult than you can handle. Um, and I do have a lot of Bible verses, but hear me give you something on the uh, my bookmark because I have my, a lot of stuff on my iPhone. Another thing is, there's no middle of the road solutions. This is and there is a solution. I guess it's page 25. This is on my phone. If you are seriously alcoholic, we as we were. We believe there's no middle road solution. What that means is it's not half-assed it. And I learned I half-assed it the first time. I didn't follow the instructions to go to rehab. There's probably a thousand other things I didn't do after that decision, but that was a fateful decision that was the hole in my ship that sunk my boat. The second time, I did everything they said. Another thing is uh, on awakening, let us think about 24 hours ahead. That means kind of before you get up, you want to kind of give your life and will over the care of God. And what that means is not just do will stuff, you know, just, okay, God, you know, first thing, be thankful, you know, and, 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 and I could, some people get irritated with me, but what, what are you thankful for? Like you, some alcohol, they're all, you know, all freaking out. Well, do you have, do you have a dollar in your pocket? Did you eat? Do you have, do you have, do you have a place to sleep? You know, you strip down that. And then you got stuff to be grateful for. I've actually had people who are normal people like, well, that's a pretty, that's a low bar, you know, to, you know, and, I, and I always say, you know, as long as I wake up not in a hospital or a jail, I'm, mm-hmm. gonna, I, I'm doing good. People who aren't in this program don't understand that talk. We do. And people who are suffering and have been broken understand that. When we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fiercely face the proposition that God is everything or he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. And what that means is totally understand that when you're talking about God, like, you know, you hear like, well, I'm, you know, God, believe in God, but what does he care about me? Or what is this stuff? Believe in that, you know, how does God take care of everything? You know, take care of the Pope and all the world. Just like iPhone, I don't know how it works, but it does. He's there. Mm-hmm. I don't, I can't comprehend it. You know, I'm not gonna be able to comprehend God, but I do know that he's there. And I have seen very dramatic instances where, you know, he is kind of touched me. He touched me when I first got sober in, in, in Sierra Tucson in October of 1989. He touched me when I was laying there paralyzed with fear going through divorce in May of 2008. And I've seen things like that. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things. I'm not somebody who can sit there and just quote like four paragraphs, page 50. I've never been like that. Mm-hmm. But I know where to find this stuff. But I love the book, and I believe you know the Bible and uh, the big book are inspired yeah. by God. Let's talk about sponsorship uh, from your point of view when you're sponsoring guys that are new or younger than you in sobriety. What have you learned sponsoring all these young men that have come in behind you? Guys who come in totally cold off the street and come into AA and get a sponsor and work the steps through that have a different experience than I, I had. I mean, I'm good at helping people in sponsoring. I've, I have sponsored a few people. Um, I find I do probably better in sponsoring people that have maybe 
went to treatment or coming out and looking for a sponsor because I didn't, I didn't actually walk in the footprints of walking in an AA meeting one day and having a talk, you know, start off right there in the meeting and go home and have somebody clear out the alcohol. I, I was fortunate to be able to go to a treatment center and all that. But I've done a lot of, I've done, I've always, when people ask me to do stuff, if I can do it, I say yes. Helping others is, somebody asked me to speak, I'll do it, do this and that. And I've helped a lot of people in sponsoring. I, like I said, I've been good at getting people and matching them. Uh-huh. With sponsors, like for instance, Tad, I couldn't sponsor him because I knew him. Yeah, finding Big Scott, yeah. who was a tough, <laughs> great sponsor, and Tad, like, and, and Tad did real well responding stuff. Yeah, I do like to say when I'm talking to people early on in sobriety, is that you do not have to comprehend to understand what any of this means. You don't have to understand a bit of it. And they're like, "Well, how do I know it works?" You know how I know it works? Because look at me. Yeah, I chose drugs yeah. over food. Look at this guy, that guy, that guy, her, 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 her. Yeah, yeah, Listen yeah. to their stories. That's how you know it works. Yeah, millions. What, what, what proof do you need besides that? Um, have you ever been to any AA conferences, and, and what did you think about them? Yeah, I did. I went, to, I went to a conference early on in Atlanta. We drove down to Florida with some friends. That was cool. I do like them. Um, I like the, the breakout sessions. I'm not a huge conference person. I love to go to some big national conference yeah, or something. Yeah. But I've been to some in Texas and a few around. Yeah. And, um, and I do enjoy them. And I do like to see um, not as much here, but Atlanta. And I used to go to a lot of meetings in California. I used to travel a lot for work in California, like Laguna Beach, like the, the Canyon Club, and then over in Los Angeles. I love the big... Um, the big time circuit speakers like Clancy, some of these real famous guys who just have a gift for telling stories. Yeah. I've always liked that. And a lot of times at these big conferences, you get to hear these real kind of professional circuit speakers, which is great. There's a big group of us going to be going to the, uh, the international conference. I believe it's in three years, and it's going to be in Vancouver, British Columbia. I'll go to that. That'd be yeah, fun. I was going to see if you wanted to go with yeah, us. Yeah, that'd be Scott's, fun. Scott's going to go. I'm yeah, going to go. I'll do that for sure. Tad will go. We're, we're all oh, gonna, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, we're all going to cruise up to Canada and go to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. So we're getting close to the end now. I want to ask you if you have any parting thoughts for our, for our audience. But while you gather your thoughts and think about if you have any parting thoughts for our audience, I want to read one more thing before we get to that. This is um, commonly referred to as the rewards. I don't know if you've heard this before or not. It's commonly referred to as the rewards. You don't hear them talked about that much, but there's 12 of them. I want to read those real quick. This has to do with uh, the rewards that you get if you stay sober. One, hope instead of desperation. Two, faith instead of despair. Three, courage instead of fear. Four, peace of mind instead of confusion. Five, Self-respect instead of self-contempt. Six, self-confidence instead of helplessness. Seven, the respect of others instead of their pity and contempt. Eight, a clean conscience instead of a sense of guilt. Nine, real friendships instead of loneliness. Ten, a clean pattern of living instead of a hopeless existence. Eleven, the love and understanding of our families instead of their doubts and fears. Twelve, the freedom of a happy life instead of the bondage of an alcoholic obsession. So I wanted to ask you if you have any parting thoughts for our audience. Uh, thank you so much. I think it's a wonderful thing you're doing. This is a great deal, and I'm honored to have been asked. Um, no matter where you are, if you're, if you're suffering drug and alcohol addiction, I know a lot of people think, oh my God, if they knew how bad I was or this or the shame or sex, all this crazy stuff that happens to us when we're, when we're enslaved drugs and alcohol, that there is no judgment. 
whatever horrible thing you think, whatever the deepest, darkest secret, we've been there. We've done that. And there's probably people who've gone way past that, that there is no shame when you come into Alcoholics Anonymous or a treatment center that you are accepted and freed because you're coming into places where people have also been broken. They've walked this path that you're in and they can help you. They're not helping you because they learned it from knowledge. They're smarter than you or better than you. They've learned it because they've been there and they, and they took the little feeble footsteps first day, second day, third day to kind of get to a place where you come out of this thing that you can get help that no matter how bad your drugs and alcohol issues are that you can get help and relief. But what you have to do is you have to surrender. And surrendering means you need to surrender your own will and your thoughts about this stuff and trust other people. And AA has created miracles. I mean, I've, we've, I mean it's countless. You couldn't even sit there. We could, you could talk forever and there are millions of stories. And I know hundreds of people who you think they would never make it. You know, and I was one of them. I was a person who was really, really bad off. And I got sober and I got my life back. And I've been sober 32 years. And it's a miracle. Not because, you know, I'm some great smart guy. It's because I simply surrendered and gave up and followed this simple program. And so I would just encourage people and, you know, be embarrassed. I mean, I've heard people, oh, I can't go there. What if somebody sees me? Well, you know what? The only person I was fooling at the end about me being a drug addict was me. If you didn't think I was a drug alcoholic, there's only one reason, because you hadn't met me. Anybody who knew me knew I was a drug alcoholic. It was obvious. It's all this self-delusion. It's all this fancy pride and stuff. And that stuff can kill you. So my parting thought is, if you're having problems, find an AA clubhouse, reach out, go to treatment center, go to halfway house. It'll save your life. It's a wonderful life. And it's been liberating and freedom. And I had my closest, deepest friends in this program. And I owe everything to it. That's beautiful. Let's talk about um, ways for people to get in contact with you. If they have any questions, comments, or suggestions, and you want to give out your email address? Yeah, yeah. Let me give my email. It's will, W-I-L-L-U-S-M-C, Evans, E-V-A-N-S, at gmail.com. So it's like Will, United States Marine Corps, Evans. Will, U-S-M-C, Evans, at gmail.com. Feel free and just in the title, put, you know, AA or something. So I'll know it's somebody in the program and I'll prioritize, you know, getting back to you guys. I'm going to read something called The Vision for You. It's from page 164 of the big book. And then we're going to um, get out of here and we'll see you guys on the next episode. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you for joining us on Sober Shares today, episode 18, featuring Will Evans. This has been a moving experience, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Have a good day, and we'll see you all in the next episode.